it is Wednesday night generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And we are still going. We we've been basically going since five o'clock. We were on with our friend Jordan Cheriton uh, on Status Coup. And then we just finished uh, an interview with our friend Fire Breathing Rob. Um, apparently, people just can't quite get over what the F with Florida Ah, uh, yeah. So, so they still so want to. They want to talk about Florida, and so apparently they they need us. Travers, I can't say I'm surprised, and neither can Jen. So it, but remember, very often a lot of what shows will do is simply go where the money is. Our goal is transforming politics into service. Um, but really, it's about information. And you guys know, like I do sort of secretly use it so that if I find something interesting and I like it, I could just invite someone on because, hey, I have a podcast. So that's actually what happened and who with did this we, guest. And who did we invite on the scene? This is very cool. So those of you who, who don't know, when I saw Dope Sick, when, I don't know, it was months and months ago at this point, I couldn't stop talking about it. Like, I, I think I talked about it like every show for like a month. I'm like, you guys have to watch this. And yeah, of course, all good things are based on books. And so uh, <laughs> I know, but, but anyway, so I didn't read the book. I saw the series and then the author of that uh, had a new book come out in August called Raising Lazarus. And her name is Beth Macy. She's a journalist. And um, I did read Raising Lazarus actually. And everyone knows this. I'm an audio person and Beth does her own audio book. So I listened to Raising Lazarus and took copious notes. You guys know I have like lots and lots of notes. So I'm very excited. And we're going to talk about um, like sort of pick up where dope sick left off to, in some extent. I mean, a little bit about like what went on with Oxycontin and the Sackler family, but more really about just the opioid crisis and where we're falling short and where we should do better. And this is going to be a big deal for me because I actually haven't seen dope sick. He yet. doesn't and have Hulu I, in I'm all fairness. Go, I'm going to, I'm going to be given a real lesson here on just how depraved the big pharma industry can actually be. Yeah, I think you know. I, I am certainly aware. She is the author of Dope Sick and now the author of Raising Lazarus, which is a sequel, I believe. Well, it's not. A, it's just these are real people. These are, you know, she's a journalist. These are real people that are serving in these very vulnerable communities and people that are helping people that are suffering from substance use. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about. Beth Macy, welcome to Generational Change. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you so much for coming. I mean, I I feel bad that I didn't read Dope Sick, that I didn't know it was a book, but I did come across it after a few recommendations on Hulu <laughs> and nothing shocked me. Um, but it's like, it's just astounding that there's not real, there haven't been any real consequences for the, for the people. That is what is just blown my mind. Um, so if you would kind of maybe pick up there, I mean, we know like that there was a bankruptcy case with the Sacklers and we know all this, but there was no prosecute, like they should be in prison. So can you explain how it is that the Sackler family is not in prison? Oh, wow. I wish I could, but he, here's the update. So uh, the company pleaded guilty in 2007 to criminally misbranding the drug. They pleaded again in 2020 to some of the same um, fraudulent marketing tactics, doctor kickbacks, et cetera. Um, in, in the meantime, there were 4,000 and some lawsuits again, against not just them, but other opioid makers, distributors, McKinsey consultants, CVS, Walgreens. And you're starting to hear like, bits of that money is starting to come down. In fact, this summer, some of the first distributor money came down. But what Purdue did is while the um, the, the big litigation uh, was being um, negotiated, they filed for bankruptcy. 
um, and not in Sanford, Connecticut, where they practice, but in White Plains, New York, because there's one bankruptcy judge in White Plains, New York. This all sounds super wonky because it is. Yeah. And I want you not to understand it. Um, that basically the upshot is this particular judge believes in this loophole that corporations can, um, you know, for a portion of their money, in this case, they got up to $6 billion, the, the Sacklers will give up the keys to Purdue and give up $6 billion of their wealth and um, walk away with civil immunity from those thousands of lawsuits. And the parents tell that to the parents of the dead who, you know, I think the average uh, award that uh, uh, one of the victims is getting is $5,000. That's not even enough to pay for a funeral. And so the upshot in my mind is unless we punish them with jail or taking all of their wealth that they made from Oxycontin, which was $13 billion, more than half of uh, what they settled at, uh, what's going to keep another family of millionaires that want to be billionaires from coming out with another dangerous drug? And, you know, seven million cases of addiction later, um, find this loophole in the bankruptcy courts. In general, not even it doesn't even have to be like a big pharma case. So basically, if you're if you're capable of paying enough in civil liability, mm -hmm. then you can literally buy your way out of criminal culpability. That that's that's the message I'm getting. Am I is that correct? Yeah, it's it's billionaire justice. And you you see it all along the way in the story um, from the very first moment when Oxycontin is a, stamped approved by Curtis Wright at the FDA. 18 months later, he goes to work for Purdue Pharma, tripling his government salary. You see it again in 2018 uh, with the revolving door of the DEA basically being kneecapped from going after suspicious orders because the lobbyists and, and the pharma bros got a hold of the legislation. And um, I really believe in hope, but we've got to have a lot more uh, regulating. We've got to have a lot more... Um, uh, bird dogging we've got to, we've got to really follow this money and what happens with it because as i say in raising lazarus my fear is that the money will go for the same old same old drug war modality incarceration first and um you know to abstinence only uh, treatments when over and over that's proven not to work for people with opioid use disorder before we get into that, like to me, one of the main reasons that I think this is so important and the key thing I really want people to get from this is I want to address the stigma problem. Because to me, this stigma problem of like, who are users? Who are people that are addicted? Who are people that have substance use disorder? And even the name substance use disorder, I don't think people know. We just say, oh, they're addicts or, you know, whatever term That's people right. use. And one thing that you said that was really stuck with me, which, and I even put it in quotes here, this is it's chapter eight in the audio book. It's, I think it's different in the other book. But the concept of complex contagions, I mm -hmm. thought was really interesting, like, which is like this shift in social norms. And that's why I think talking about the stigma is so important because the more people understand what we're talking about, the more likely that they will be to stand up at their city council meetings or fight for legislation and, and all that. So that's why I think it's so important to start at the root to get more people on the team. 
absolutely. And I think that's slowly starting to happen. I mean, I got to give credit to Danny Strong, the show creator, and to Hulu for putting the show on the air um, because, you know, millions of people watch this eight hours of gripping television that not only uh, took you through this kind of legal thriller, but also through the very real stories of what happened to people on the ground, like the Michael Keaton character, like the Betsy character played by Caitlin Deaver. And if you could come away from eight hours of gripping TV and understand how we got here to where we are as a nation right now, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. We had people reaching out to our team to say, one mom said, you know, I called my addicted son for the first time in three years and the whole idea was to put the onus on who the real criminals are. It's it's not your cousin at Subway who's in jail because he got arrested with heroin. Uh, it, you know, it's Richard Sackler. Yeah. I, in general, and this is something that we see, especially in the intersection between addiction and the fact that we don't have health care in this country. Um, we, in general do not care about the concept of a collective. I talk about this all the time. It's We're very individualistic. It's every man for himself. And so we tend to look at people that suffer from addiction as it's their fault. Let them figure it out. Why should, why should I pay so that he could have clean needles or whatever it is? And I think people just feel like somehow punishing instead of helping. And I just, I think it's really important for us to change that. And I'd love for you to talk about some of the stories because in Raising Lazarus, I I cannot remember every character. I mean, and I know these are real people. That's They're not even characters, they're real people. (laughs) But um, like the stories and how they were like, how it is to help people that are just totally like cast out of the system. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about Charleston, West Virginia, where the CDC has pronounced, uh, has the most concerning HIV outbreak in the nation. And, you know, this is ground zero for the opioid crisis. Purdue targeted those areas back in early days. The coal mining jobs were going away at the same time. The factory jobs were going away. The government did nothing for the people left behind. And these communities are really hurting. And there's a lot of anger in them and misdirected anger, in my opinion. So what you had uh, is what you have now is people running for election on an anti-harm reduction platform. You know, they're 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 buying Richard Sackler's BS when when they do that. Um, but they're angry because their communities are, are distressed. The, almost every family has experienced this. And, um, y- you know, it, that's why it was so important to, to tell the story on, in the Hulu show really as a stigma breaker more than anything. Yeah. So that when people can see, no, your government is the ones who got bought off and let us down by not regulating this drug, by not prosecuting fully, by nobody going to jail. And so the behavior continues when white collar criminals don't go to jail, the behavior continues. We saw it again in 2020 with the recidivist crimes. And, um, We've got a lot of work to do. We have 7 million people now who have opioid use disorder. That, that came out after the book. That just came out recently. And you know, that's a, a times four than what we previously thought. So it's much worse. And, um, you know, fentanyl is the main culprit these days. But were it not for Oxy and this whole flipping of the narrative, 
uh, from opioids are addictive to opioids are perfectly safe, we wouldn't be where we were. And there wouldn't be this like killing killer demand for opioids, fentanyl and what have you. Yeah, I think people have this idea, you know, look, there's always going to be people that are outliers in society that are addicts, that are people that just they some people just party too hard and they just don't want to get out of their own way. That does exist. But the majority of people that we're talking about are regular people that were basically poisoned, poisoned by the Sackler family to where their bodies are now addicted to no fault of their own. And those people should not be stigmatized, not that anybody should be stigmatized, but this was not like these people just party too hard. And, and I, and I just feel like that's very important. And so when we say, do you say, um, OUD is opioid use disorder. And then there's SUD. Can you just explain that? Because sure. this isn't one of those, just, you guys know, this is not one of those overwoke things where I care about like what you say about people, but we need to set this up as a health issue and not a criminal issue. And right. I think that words are important. So would you, would you explain that? Sure. So I think probably in Dopesick, which came out in 2018, I might have had the word addicts in there a time or two. That's considered stigmatizing language. I, I tried to learn my lesson. I, I hired somebody to give it a sensitivity read. In fact, yeah. um, So people who use drugs is the uh, preferred phrase for um, and or people with SUD, substance use disorder or OUD, uh, opioid use disorder. Um, instead of saying relapse, uh, people are taught to say return to use. And it's just this idea of using um, person-centered language rather than continuing um, the stigma. And this idea that these folks who you see living homeless on the riverbank in Charleston, West Virginia, some of whom you know, are being tested for HIV, they can't get clean needles, and now the cops are kicking them out of their homeless encampment. These are people just like us that uh, uh, many of them had families and kids, and, you know, this could happen to any one of us, um, particular if, particularly if we had had an injury um, in the 90s, in the 2000s, and gotten overprescribed opioids. Yeah, it's it's just it's so um it's shameful and it's so blatant. Um and you see it how it intersects with so many things and I wanted you to explain um you were talking about Mount Airy and I'm ve- I spend every summer I'm in North Carolina, I'm out in Asheville, so North Carolina is Great. a special place in my heart. Yeah. Um and the real connection between yeah, there's job loss, but the people that are um using drugs can't get jobs because they're being jo- so you have unemployed people like the intersection between the job crisis and the the opioid crisis. Yes. So when I first started following Mount Airy, it was two plus years ago, two and a half. And they had 500 job openings they couldn't fill because they couldn't get people to, who could pass a drug test. By the time I closed up the book, call it eight months ago, they had 1,800 job openings. So, you know, when I hear the government say, build back better, got to work on our infrastructure, who is going to literally build that infrastructure? We need to build our human capital, right? We need to get people better. We need to make the treatments easier to access than the dope. And the reason I wanted to write about Mount Airy, you know, that's um, Mayberry, you know, the, the location from the Andy Griffith show yeah, yeah. and all their marketing is built around. We're wholesome, you know, got Andy Griffith's likeness on the water tower with Opie. 
And, um, and yet they had the second highest overdose rate in the nation when I started going down there. And the first meeting I went to was a group of, you know, church people who were basically trying to do um, a volunteer transportation network because most people live out in the country and they couldn't get a ride to the clinic to get their medication-assisted treatment in town. And the meeting was quickly hijacked by a Kiwanis Club civic leader who said, I think when they overdose, we should let them die and take their organs. So, um, yeah. That's a little little too libertarian for my taste, but okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And yet they came back from that and, you know, they hired a really great opioid response director. They started a a syringe syringe services program, harm reductionist, going around the back roads, handing out clean needles and connections to care when people are ready. If you overdose in that county now, you get a post-overdose response uh, to you. That means a peer, a a person in recovery who is a peer support specialist will come to your house and talk to you. They're not going to force you to go into treatment, but they're going to help you make the treatments easier to access than the dope, which is so important. So that's why I love long form journalism is you can watch change happen over a long period of time and not just like all namby pamby positive change, but warts and all like it doesn't get much wartier than let them die and take their organs. No, that's pretty horrible. And and this sort of brings me into some of the harm reduction solutions that have been being used. And if you could talk talk a little bit about that, um, I know that there is the medication that people can go on. I know there's people that say it's the same difference as just being addicted. I mean, there's that. But um, I want to talk about what solutions are possible that are being employed, because then we're going to talk about what the political impediments are to having those things done. So yeah. let's start with like, what what could we be doing? Yeah. So So I start the book out in a McDonald's parking lot next to a dumpster where a harm reduction worker who's a nurse practitioner is meeting a new patient and he can't make it to the clinic during the day for a variety of reasons, but he can meet him here near his house and he's going to get him on buprenorphine. That's also called Suboxone or medication assisted treatment, MAT. He's going to get him, call him in a discount prescription, trying to, again, make the treatment easier to get in the dope. But he wants him to know two things before he leaves. He says, one, you can get better. Most Americans have written this population off. Most people with OUD themselves think they can't stop using drugs because any time previously when they've tried to access treatment, they've had so many barriers. They've been treated so poorly, so stigmatized um, from doctor's offices to hospitals. Um, They really like, I mean, one person in the book, like, just decides to die at home alone rather than go back to the hospital where she's been so so stigmatized and she dies of end-stage endocarditis. She's 28 years old. Um, So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit, this idea of making the medicine, which is the gold standard of care, buprenorphine and methadone, make them free really easy access, come to them, if even if they live in a homeless encampment, walk-in clinics, like in San Francisco, they, they, they have like people know there's going to be a nurse practitioner on this day and they can just go up and see them in a tent. And, and, and that's what was happening there outside of Asheville um, in Hickory, North Carolina um, with the nurse practitioner. And because I, I was like, I want to write about this because if they can pull this off in a conservative red state that hasn't expanded Medicaid, like anybody should be able to do it. But it's 
what we're leaving it now is to volunteers in their own personal cars, like driving all over the place, like working at the ragged edge of capacity. And we need to scale it up to, so, to match the scale of the crisis. Yeah. And we hear of people that are having problems with that because they say ridiculous things like, well, if you make that available, then everybody's going to want to go ahead and start using drugs. If you're going to give out free needles, well, then we're all going to just start shooting up like this yeah. nonsense which we know statistically is completely incorrect. And it's like this NIMBY fear factor that, that you get so much. But the facts show that those types of harm reduction programs actually help, right? Like this yeah. is not surprising, right? It's helpful. People who access syringe service programs are five times more likely to eventually enter treatment three times more likely to stop using drugs altogether. We know it reduces a crime. Uh, you know, people aren't stealing things to buy their drugs. Um, it reduces the spread of hepatitis C, HIV, endocarditis, um, really, really expensive things to treat, by the way. If we wait until it's end stage, um, you know, we're going to spend a million dollars on a patient rather than the buprenorphine is super cheap. And but there is, as you said, there is a huge stigma about it. A lot of folks think it's just training a drug with another drug. And I, I've interviewed. Um, I try to show how people change their minds, and then they become evangelists for what they were once against. Because I think yeah. that's really powerful. You have an ED doc who says, "Nah, it's just training a drug addiction with another drug. It's not our purview." And yet, that's where people are showing up in the emergency rooms with abscesses and really horrible diseases and overdoses. And yet when he changes his mind and he's suddenly getting in people into care, um, he's seeing it's not the same people cycle in and out. And then he gets really excited about his job. And I've seen that in every realm, whether it's a drug court judge that won't allow people to be in the drug court if they're taking MAT to, um, a cop, for instance, who thinks they should just go to jail. Oh, wait a minute. When we uh, divert them to treatment instead, you know, now two years later, they're sober and they're not showing up in our jail all the time. I mean, I think people want to do the right thing, but. So what are the barriers? Look, I mean, we talk a lot about the for-profit prison system and, and how that works, but like, what are the real political barriers that you're seeing, um, not in theory, but that are actually happening in towns where they're wanting to not have those kinds of treatments, like what are the laws that would help and who and why and what are the people doing to say, no, we can't have that? Well, we've already talked about Mount Airy when the opioid response director first started digging into the issue. And he's a former DEA, former Marine, the least likely you would think to be a harm reduction person. But he's done the research. So he knows it works. And yet when he goes to the judges in his community, they said, no, we can't even start a drug court. He gets funding for it. We can't start it because what we're doing now is 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 like a drug court. Well, then why do you have the second highest overdose rate in the nation? Why do you have recidivism? Why do you have a jail that's twice as full as it's supposed to be with people being dope sick in the intake room? And um, so that's one thing. Like there is this. Something he pointed out to me was that the county sheriff is the highest elected law enforcement officer in the nation. They have gobs of power. 
And if they want to get reelected, um, you know, it's popular to cast themselves as hug a thug. You know, not we're not a hug a thug. We don't do namby pamby jail here. We're tough on crime, you know, and we've got to stop that. We've got this drug war that we spend how many billions of dollars on every year. And it's what we're doing isn't working. It's just not working. So I tried to show you examples of people who have gone around the system, uh, pulling end runs, you know, improvise, overcome, adapting, and um, and figuring it out. They shouldn't have to do that. That, That's the point. So, guys, in the book, in Raising Lazarus, you it's stories of basically this underground railroad of treatment for people that are suffering and, and it shouldn't have to be an underground thing. It's just ridiculous. But, you know, we can tie that into healthcare in general in this country. If we actually had healthcare that was functional, a lot of these people probably wouldn't be in the position that they're in in the first place. Speaking, oh, with, Beth, right. speaking with Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick and Raising Lazarus. Beth, if you could talk about the impact that big pharma's had on the single payer healthcare movement, which would effectively, you know, pull the teeth on the opioid crisis in many ways, because let's face it, most if not all the things that are done to you know, mitigate the circumstance is about the for-profit industry, that is healthcare, as well as uh, the criminal justice system. Um, I think they're all interconnected. Uh, I think the whole system is connected because it's all for-profit. We're in very late stage capitalism right now. Uh, but obviously there is this uh, growing movement, if you will, of recognition that, yeah, this is not a this is not a stigma that people need. They need to recognize that this is a actual health crisis. And the way we deal with it is by basically defanging big pharma. Your thoughts on that? Well, we know that the medication, the Medicaid expansion is still hasn't passed in 12 states. Many of the states are red states that have some of the highest overdose death rates. And again, you've got politicians running on tough on crime. Um, personal responsibility. And um, I mean, that just seems like another case of low hanging fruit. We have an 87% treatment gap in the nation. That means only 13% of folks with OUD have managed to get treatment in the last year. So one of the ways that I think we would help a lot is there's an act in the Senate right now called the MAD Act. Um, and it would basically take the waiver away. Right now, physicians have to have a special training, a special waiver to prescribe buprenorphine when they don't have to have anything special to prescribe opioids or Oxycontin, you know, what the reason you need buprenorphine. And so I think there's some really, um, and I know the drug czar's office is on board with this. I know they know what um, the science says. I just think they have to be so careful and because um, it, it's such a political, sticky wicked. And, you know, it shouldn't be because we know that opioid use disorder uh, affects everyone, uh, rich and poor, black and white, um, red and blue. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, I know the answer is is education. It's it's removing the stigma. And at the beginning of the book, I was so frustrated. I was like, why can't the president just do, you know, why can't Congress make a law and uh, have this be so? But it's as um, 
Dr. Jar- Josh Sharp <laughs> points out in the book, it right. is mostly a political problem. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't have the political will to get it done. Yeah. And I think that's why this is important. And that's why I like to do this is because I feel like the more people that are aware, the more people will show up and ask for it and demand it. And, and, you know, I just, there are so many people that have been touched. I don't think I know. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know someone who hasn't had somebody who's OD'd. I don't, I don't, I mean, it's so rampant. It's like how many million people now? Over 1 million people have died of drug overdose since Oxycontin came out in 1996. And 7 million people are currently addicted. When I had a very serious surgery, uh, I had uh, a microdiscectomy, even though it's, you know, considered not the biggest surgery in the world, but it was on, you know, my lumbar and it's on the spine. And so a partial uh, piece of the disc was removed. And as a result, uh, I was obviously in a lot of pain and they prescribed Oxycontin for me, deal with it. Now, normally you would think if you're recovering from something of this significance, you would only take Oxycontin if you were in excruciating pain and literally are physically incapacitated, can't move, need to be able to, um, you know, basically calm down the swelling so you can actually physically move. Now, I would say over the course of my recovery, I took three Oxycontin total. They prescribed 60 Oxycontin for me. And as far as I can tell, because I have always been straight laced, that the whole idea behind giving you that many pills is to get you hooked on them. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. And if I don't get hooked on them, because these are considered a hot commodity on the street, I could have sold 57 Oxycontin pills and probably made a couple of thousand dollars, just like oh, that. Oh, more than that. It, it, it sold for a dollar a milligram. That's amazing. Yes. So 180, you could get $80 for so the whole system is designed to not only screw you, but to suck you in at the same time. Sorry for the puns, but it's the truth. And Oxycontin is just one of many, but it's certainly one that was designed specifically for profit. That's it. And no matter how many people have to die, no matter how many families have to suffer, no matter how much people are in pain, whether it's your friends, colleagues, whoever, there is somebody out there that figures, well, <laughs> if, I, if anybody's going to get rich, it might as well be me. And if people have to suffer as a result, then that's the way it's going to be. And that's why I am a huge advocate for universal health care. Yeah, no, that's our, I mean, that's one of our primary purposes. But yeah. what places are doing it right? Like what, what areas have you seen that are, do you think, and even if it's other countries that are really doing a, a decent job at helping people that are um, suffering from opioid use? Well, um, you know, New York just uh, opened two supervised consumption sites and that's another, that's been another big political um, hot potato, but I'm for anything that gets people back into systems of care, that 40% of folks who who don't think they can get better, who don't want to stop using drugs. We're going to help them use more safely so that then when they're ready, we can connect them to care. And we know that happens. There's been zero deaths in the world at safe consumption sites. So Canada is also a model. Switzerland, you can get heroin-assisted treatment. And like, what? You're giving them heroin? We're giving them a little bit of heroin so they don't have to wake up with the first thing on their mind 
being, oh my God, I'm in terrible withdrawal. I'm dope sick. Where can I get drugs? We're going to give them this little amount so that they can start to work on their trauma, their, their, their family situations, get their jobs back. And, and you see it working. The, the science is so clear. Europe is way ahead of us on this, as is Canada. Um, and, you know, a few places in the States. There are, not to say uh, uh, safe consumption isn't happening in several places in the country. It's just happening uh, underground. Um, and then these two places in New York, and I think Rhode Island is due to open uh, a pilot site soon. There's also been a big discussion in Philadelphia, uh, but they keep running into legal barriers there. Yeah, I think that the more that people understand what we do need to do for people and are just aware of what's out there as far as possible treatments, that the more we can like advocate for that. And I think that it really just comes down to we have to care about other people and see that they're suffering and not see them as criminals. And the whole idea that drugs have been criminalized, I never, to me, it's just always been a healthcare issue that we need to address. And for some reason, we've really been susceptible to this punishment, punitive mentality, like where we want to punish people for every bad decision they've ever made. And it's really unfortunate. I, and I'm curious if if you noticed that kind of attitude when you were, you know, talking to people out there and, and doing the research for this, that it's like they just really don't give a crap about other people. Yeah, I mean, we have all come grown up in uh, being inculcated in war on drugs thinking, you know, um, this idea that, you know, it's a crime. These people are moral moral failures. And then we have X million of jobs of people who are employed by this huge machinery of the drug war, which was designed for racist purposes, you know, during the Nixon years to shore up his Southern strategy. Um, and, And it's just grown ever since. There was a time before the war on drugs, actually under Nixon, he who who appointed the nation's first drug czar uh, before the drug war. Uh, he was trying to score points. It's all about scoring political points. He was trying to score points with returning veterans from Vietnam who were addicted to heroin. And so he appoints a, a drug czar, the first one we've ever had, Dr. Jerome Jaffe, this kind of crusty psychiatrist. And gives him a week to basically design a program of walk-in methadone clinics. They end up starting 300 in the nation. And that's the kind of care I'm advocating now. You could go into one, um, you know, no questions asked, not have to pay, and get help with housing and social supports. But back then, we spent 70% of our drug budget on treatment and 30% on incarceration. Since then, of course, in the 80s, it totally flipped the other way. And now we need, you know, more equilibrium or a move back to the way Jaffe designed it. I know this is probably a dope question, no pun intended. Uh, why exactly, from your perspective, are they able to get away with what they're able to get away with? I know the simple answer is, well, they just buy Congress. But ultimately, propaganda. you know, you have these families that, you know, they'll do something terrible that will allow them to profit, you know, 50 billion. And then, oh, yeah, we're going to slap you on the wrist for six billion. Well, it sounds to me like they're getting a pretty good return on investment. <laughs> so, 
Why, so why do you see yeah, So they made 13 billion on Oxycontin and they're offering six right now. And they have this phalanx of lawyers, consultants. I mean, after the 07 slap on the wrist, they hired McKinsey consultants who moved into their offices and taught them how to do an end run around these new corporate integrity agreements they promised to abide by. Um, there's a great new book out called When McKinsey Comes to Town that, that parses that. Um, their chief legal consultant makes $1,790 an hour, and he's just one of dozens of lawyers and consultants that they've hired. And as Richard Sackler once famously said, he could get any Congress or senator on the phone, you know, in a day or two if he wanted. Um, money buys power. Yeah. So somebody was saying something, somebody who's sitting there and trolling me. But one of the things that they said was, can we talk about something more positive? So I wanted to ask you, like in your in your travels, in what you were when you were working on this book, what is one of the stories that you found really inspired? You know, because I mean, obviously, it's 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 like how many one step forward, two steps back for a lot of yeah. the people working yeah. in that. But yeah. Tell, tell a story, because I know there were some that were very... Oh, my God. Almost everybody in the new book is a hero. They, yeah. uh, they are working at the ragged edge of capacity. Many of them are peers, people in recovery themselves, some of whom relapsed during uh, the pandemic because their work was so stressful. But, um, but, but not all of them. And um, I mean, I'm thinking of Nikki King, who was an addiction pioneer in rural Indiana, who basically the town of Batesville took a vote. What is our most pressing problem? Opioid uh, overdoses by far. And she challenged the court and the criminal justice system to help her and her nonprofit hospital design uh, a better solution. And so what they did is when somebody would come out of prison or jail, they would wrap services around them. They would get them signed up for Medicaid in India. They would get them jobs. And so the programming was all at night after they worked. Um, they would help them with, they connect them to food pantries, um, get them on MAT. And in 18 months, they had zero overdose deaths. I mean, this is something that if you've got the Medicaid expansion, the, the, I wrote about it for the Atlantic and then I put it in the book because it's just such a, this is one person who grew up in the epicenter of Oxycontin in Eastern Kentucky and just like, by God, she's going to make a difference on this. And she knows how to do it. But, um, you know, it was very, it was a political hot potato there too. Um, and, you know, the day my story came out, the hospital CEO had bought a bunch of copies and he quickly like put them in a closet because some of the judges and the probation officers didn't like the way the story came out. They thought it gave her too much credit. And so you've got these small town politics um, that are so difficult to deal with. Um, and, you know, here's this woman that's designed this amazing program and it's actually working. Um, so I, I thought it was important to show both sides of that. You know? I think it's amazing. I'm very pleased. It's like you, you, the journalism that you're doing is very, very important and it's very appreciated by me. And I, and I very much like that. So thank me you. Too. Cause there's not what me too. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> there you go. I'm just, I like it. I mean, it's just, um, and it's, it's sad, but it's important for people to know like that. I get it. It's, this is not the most uplifting kind of stuff, but it's reality. It is reality and, and you ignore it at your own peril. 
And there's just, I mean, I think of the new book as almost like a guidebook of how to turn it back. Of course, we need more federal, stronger, stronger state and federal leadership. Of course, we do. Of course, we need medical schools to actually be teaching new doctors how to identify and treat addiction. We're still not doing that. Um, So leadership is totally needed. Meanwhile, as you described it, so great, I wrote it down. We've got this underground railroad network of helpers going around and actually getting the stuff done. I mean, it's incredible. It's almost despite the government impetus, they are figuring out a way around this. It really goes to show you, right, that people will really find a way. I mean, they shouldn't have to. And I do think that it's not just, you know, happenstance that it's peers that are helping people. I think that people who have been through that are best suited to probably relate and help people that are stuck in it. Like, I I mean, it would seem that way. Absolutely. I, I, I say the peers are my rowdy angels in this book. They are like a person who's been through that and come out on the other side. They're like 10 of us. They are so strong. Yeah. They can deal with so much. They can go right to the bedside and the hospital and say, hey, I've been where you've been and um, and, and be with them every step of the way. D- does it work every time the first time? No, of course not. But um, these peers are really out there doing the Lord's work, in my opinion. Way to be, Ava. Speaking with Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick and Raising Lazarus, um, I would say that the best place to wind down the conversation is, do you have any allies on Capitol Hill? Is there anybody that is, um, you know, let's say not in the pocket of big pharma and private insurance that is working to try to help push this forward. Katie Porter. I would imagine Katie would be one, um, but would love to hear from you. Katie you Porter, to. yes. Oh man, she ripped the Sacklers a new one. Uh, yeah, look at what they're doing to her right now. Look what they're doing to her right now. They're trying to knock her out and everyone's trying to pretend like it isn't happening. We have a viral I'm tweet. I'm freaking out about it. We have it. a viral tweet that's out right now that basically is calling out the Democrats who just allowed the GOP to just pump somebody. But it's 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 hand in glove. You know, they they work together, the corporate side on both, which are heavily funded by the big farm. But industry. who isn't, right? That's right. Well, the biggest yeah, lobby in America is eight oh, times more far. than the gun lobby. Of course, they're bigger than the oil lobby because we don't need private insurance. We don't need this big pharma overlord. We have them because we are the one major country on earth that has a for-profit healthcare system. And it isn't healthcare, it's it's desperation. It's not right. But are there other allies besides Katie, who better win? Well, I think all the people that were supporting the Sackler Act, which would have, you know, done bankruptcy reform, um, uh, Jerome Nadler, Carolyn Maloney. Um, I'm really pulling for the Matt Act, which is currently in the Senate. And I'm hopeful that it'll pass in this lame deck session coming up. Um, most of the Democrats are for it. Some of the Republicans um, I think the drugs are Dr. Raul Gupta, despite uh, having presided over West Virginia when they closed down Needle Exchange the first time in 2018. I think he's learned some lessons from that. And I know he knows the data. I've read his papers. I've met with him. Um, again, it is like this political problem that we have of not being able to get things done. Um, I'm really hopeful that the litigation money, when it when it comes down, it's beginning to trickle in doubt, won't go towards drug war and new cop cars and 
um, abstinence only treatment. We, we know that doesn't work for people with OUD. Um, so well, no, not when there, a lot of them are pres- started out as prescription over, like problems. Like you, how, how would, how would abstinence have helped that situation? Do you have the Senator from Vermont? I just want to make sure that he is supporting your cause and in the Senate, you know, we certainly could use <laughs> Bernie Sanders support. Just want to make sure. Okay. Is that, uh, I would think Bernie would be very amenable to these things. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would you know, too. And I would what I would love, I think what would make a huge difference, and I'm stealing this idea from Reverend Michelle Mathis, who runs the nation's first queer biracial faith-based harm reduction. She said, mandatory harm re- harm reduction uh education for law enforcement officers. Because we're not gonna do away with law enforcement. We're just not. But how about let's train them? Because I've seen the ones who are starting to employ it. They like what's happening. They like seeing people get better. Um, they're not just all out to get us, but it's the way they're acculturated. It's the rules that they're taught. We need to start changing what the rules are. Anything that you are currently working on besides raising Lazarus that anyone should know about and how they could follow you? I work? mean, you're a journalist, too. I mean, I know you do other stuff, but this is obviously how I found you was from from raising Lazarus. Yeah, I write. I write books now. This is my fourth book. Um, hoping to write uh, a memoir next about the divide that we uh, find ourselves in. One in five families are fractured because of politics, including my own. So that's kind of next on my. That's on my on deck right now. I'm still out um, talking about the the new book at this moment but hopefully by the new year i'll be working on the next book excellent thank you so much for coming on and talking about this i really enjoyed it and i always like to give extra kudos for people that do their own audiobooks because oh. i so appreciate it i only do it for nonfiction. Um, but I like it when it's the other, I'm like getting a private lecture. That's what I feel like to me. I'm getting a personal lecture, but I, and then I just have to take notes when I don't have a book, but <laughs> I do that too. Sometimes while driving, it's great. Oh, see, uh, now that would be dangerous yeah. to me. And I, I actually in and out of my it. books, you know, as a person, when, especially when I'm profiling a lot of people, I feel like yeah. I'm the through line. And so it would be, it's kind of weird to have somebody else be saying I in my books, I, I think, but I enjoy doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Beth. It was so nice to meet you. I really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to seeing more stuff. I, I will be watching Dope Sick, I promise. He, oh, and, and in all fairness to him, it's not like the stuff is free, right? Like, so people have to subscribe to the I mean, it is what it is, but it's- I, so I, Well, I really like And you Michael could Keaton. read the book, but the, oh. but the show, but Michael Keaton's awesome. Michael Keaton is so good. And Caitlin Deaver too. I mean, Excellent. they just all killed it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know the book is always better, you know, but, but it well, was quite different from the show. The The show really is the first third of the book and it's before heroin. It's really mostly the Oxycontin and the pills. The book kind of takes you up to almost present day. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate and thank it. Thank you for what you do. Beth. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for what you do. Absolutely. Bye. Right. Take care. Bye. What do I say? So she lady. was lovely. And she was. Yeah. Very, uh, very committed to the cause, which is great. Which is I love great. real journalists. So, guys, this is a really good opportunity to, first of all, 
shout out double K you're like going above and beyond tonight. We so appreciate it. And, yeah. um, you're rock great. Star. I just didn't want to stop. Totally I didn't want to stop the, the flow of the to think that we've converted one person from giving Jimmy Dore money to giving us money is really impressive. So, well, look, he does that himself because he's changed from what he originally was. We're just trying to educate people. Um, but before you guys start dwindling off, do your spiel. Well, we're not Now's done, the time. Well, that's true, but we do have another guest. That might be, but we have, but do it. Well, just in case you guys have any intention of giving us a little support, much as Double K has, because she should not be responsible for all of the support of this channel, we, of course, do have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a supporter of our wonderful show, as you are seeing, having <clears throat> great guests, conversations, very informative, but also fun at the same time. I didn't give her my Trump impression. I, I don't like to do that with real that. serious people that we don't know. I just feel like, it, 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 you know. Well, she, even the Bernie impression. She, was, she wasn't. You know, yeah, see, I always feel like that's not, she wasn't here for that. But guys, we would definitely appreciate appreciate support on Patreon. Appreciate. Um, we have, right, for $10 a month. Wait, for $10 a month. Look at this. Look at these babies. Right you get here. a couple of stickers. You get the Lulu sticker. You get the mansion parliamentarian bumper sticker. And that's only for $10 a month. Which so now is going to be sported by Jordan Sheraton on Sheraton his show. You'll be all the hit. Oh, absolutely. He's going to get that thing up. You'll there. be in, in the crowd with that. And for $25 a You're month. feeling very generous. Look at this jersey. You get right the Here Comes head. the Sun jersey, and on the back it says Generation. Generational Change. And it's a tri-blend, the softest oh, of soft cotton. <laughs> I know, I they like They are it. nice. They are nice jerseys. But guys, seriously, what we do with the money is service. And now that campaign season is over, we won't be donating, but we what we donated to non-corporate candidates. But our money goes to mobile school pantry. Our money goes to local community garden. Our money goes towards homeless. Like we do um, hygiene packets that we that we hand out. Like that's where the money goes. We're just we're just trying to help people. And sometimes every once in a while, throw a few dollars to the guys that help us do video work. Double K would know. Patreon, better than Google. Obviously, exactly. Super Chats are always appreciated. But any oh, yeah. support you can provide, obviously, is very much appreciated. But of course, not everybody wants to put their credit card on file. We certainly understand that. If you are so inclined, and maybe you would be better off with, let's say, Cash App, you can go over there and chip in any amount you like. And that is found at dollar sign gen change. So right. that's where you can like, for example, I didn't tell you this, but I got the promotion from our friend Zena for the mobile school pantry um, Thanksgiving for the gobble giveaway, gobble, and, gobble. gobble giveaway. And um, so generational change made a donation for that uh, for Thanksgiving. So just regular service and community. No, work. Travers, we're not going to do that. Despite No, the actually, the cannabis comes completely from my personal thing. I would never cross contaminate my business with my cannabis. Well, that's good to know. I'm just, I wouldn't do that. So no, a, everything that comes in through Gen Chains goes into its whole own thing and is used on its whole own stuff, and it's very separate. So before we bring on our final guest, you guys know Walker Bragman. He will be on in about 10 minutes. We obviously want to highlight a lot of what transpired and is currently transpiring right now. Uh, the Democrats, uh, I, I was joking on Jer Jordan Chariton's status quo stream a little bit earlier that only the Democrats could celebrate losing the House and make it seem like they won. Well, as the numbers are bearing out right now, it's not looking too good for them in the Senate either. There's only one seat I care about right now. So. And so right now there are two seats in the Senate that look like 
They're going to the Republicans. Nevada is going to flip, likely, and Alaska is going to go red as well. So where does that put the GOP? It puts them at 50 seats. So if that is the case, and again, either way, you got Kelly Tishibaka and Lisa Murkowski. The T is probably silent. Either one, maybe. Ishbaka? Shibaka. Shibaka, sorry. Uh, either way, those that's a GOP. So that's 49. And if this holds, it means that the GOP is going to get 50 seats. And then at a minimum, they the, obviously the runoff in uh, – in, our, in Georgia is going to determine whether or not the Democrats tie or the GOP has a two seat advantage. I actually think Warnock can pull off. A, a special, I hope he does. Runoff. I do. Well, I do. I think without the whole red nonsense going on all around it, we might be able to, to focus on that in particular and maybe figure out a way to just push him right over the over the line. So as of right now, the GOP has gained six congressional seats and the Democrats have lost eight congressional seats. Can we talk about the one that's most important and give an update? What's going on there, please? I will give you all an update regarding California. That's. I just want to know one right district. Now we just want to know if Katie Porter is actually going to survive this political I'm scare. I'm so uh, the idea worried about. People have no really, idea the gravity. never really talked about oh at God. the length people, that it needed people, to be. People. So Katie Porter's situation is no. she is currently sitting at 50.5% to her opponent, Scott Baugh's 49.5%. But only, so why is only 48% still reporting? You know, apparently there was an issue in Arizona with the ink. Uh, that is, I, I don't know if TM was oh, joking or if that is actually serious. Well, that's Arizona. So what's going on? Why is Katie, why are they only 48% of the precincts reporting? So they're still very slow in counting the votes, but right now it's neck and neck I'm with Katie so- Hobbs and Carrie Lake. Uh, currently it is 50.3% for Katie Hobbs, 49.7%. They are separated by, uh, exactly 13,000 votes. And there's 70% reporting. So how much is outstanding? I, well, again, it all depends on Maricopa County and how much has to be counted there, uh, versus the rest of the state. Um, it could be somewhat of a mixed bag as far as the U S Senate race. That shouldn't even be that close. And if Katie Hobbs had a set, they wouldn't be in this position. I can't believe she declined to debate somebody. Where do you get off running for, what is it, governor? Yeah. You're governor. running for governor of a state and you're scared to debate somebody? That's a problem. Mark Kelly is holding steady at 5% up on Blake Mass. Blake Masters is such a disaster. Another Trumpy, loony. Uh, and Kelly's all right. Like, I don't, I mean, he's fine. Yeah. And so where this puts us, despite all of the things that everyone is talking about, and everyone's saying, oh, well, we didn't lose that badly. Well, you have <laughs> the youth to thank, because that's important. And then you have Roe v. Wade to thank. You have Roe v. Wade to thank. But this idea that the Democrats didn't actually lose. They lost so bad. They lost. This is not a victory. No. Stop acting like this is a victory. It's not. It's a survival, if you want to call it that. And barely. That's okay. Because the GOP now owns Florida. So that's 30 electoral votes that basically is in their camp and they can start plotting ahead to what their next plans are going to be. And probably because Florida became a foregone conclusion, how much of that money then ended up in Nevada, which it looks like they're not going to flip that state. 
So all that hard work that they did to get Pennsylvania into the blue column and give them credit because the best win of the night by far was John Fetterman. But you're going to end up getting screwed somewhere else. You know why they own Florida. Because I think Debbie sold it to them. Probably. They somehow bought Look at the how state. red Texas is. Look at how red the whole country is. This whole idea that you were going to flip Texas. I am curious of, about that blue area in, in some of those states. It's kind of interesting. Well, this is uh, places like Biloxi and. Again, it's still Mississippi. Alabama. This is obviously Birmingham. The, Georgia, you have obviously this is Atlanta. I don't know what that is down there. Uh, is it? It's not. No, it's not. It's um, Valdosta, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess but still, I that's very pretty interesting. But, but it's it, just kind of interesting because again, the country really is divided based on geography, based on is it rural or is it urban. That basically is the defining characteristic of what our country has become. That's not good. We shouldn't be divided that way. And we so, shouldn't be divided anyway. It's a class no. war. There's only a few people at the top, and the rest of us, we're all on the same team. No, we're going to show you guys. I'm going to get this up. So I want you to all be able to see what our actual map looks like, because this is what our country looks like. Now, of course, when it comes to the GOP, what they uh, and they're you know they have their own people that are going to try to convince you that what they're espousing is well. Look at how red the country is. Well, not exactly. It's that. We really are divided based almost exclusively on whether you're urban or you're rural. And then the suburbs are mixed in. Rural. Rural. Fine. Rural. And so I I just, they're trying to like point out numbers that, oh, well, it's because of Biden this and Biden that. No, it's not because of Biden. There were a lot of people, as Jordan was pointing out on Status Quo earlier, where we were on that comedy, uh, comedy calamity. That's great. In fact, and you're right. Most of the red is empty land. That is true. That that is that is true. That person is correct. Like that is a lot of empty space. Like Wyoming has, you know, how many representatives? That's true. So Utah, a lot of that Montana, is North, it, South right. That is true. But it really does show the diversity in what Peter's talking about: the difference between people in the middle of the country and like the coastal people. And it is a big difference. It's this huge divide. But it's yet, it's still going to keep getting redder and redder until the Democrats come up with some sort of I don't know identity or plan, maybe have a platform. But in many ways, they win in spite of themselves is really the point. I don't know if they win as much as sometimes the Republicans lose. Uh, I think that that's, you can make when that argument When was the last time you've ways. seen a real a Democrat really win-win? Obama the I mean, first time. Yeah, yeah, I guess you'd have to say that. But kind of like looking at the state of uh, New Jersey, well, not New Jersey, excuse me, Florida, and it looks like in terms of the governorships, it's going to be, it might actually be fairly even. Uh, actually, no, the GOP right now is tracking to have, I think, 26 and the Democrats 24. But, you know, generally <clears throat> speaking, that's actually pretty good. Uh, they're usually not able to do that, although Vermont went red. So that was a flip. Massachusetts went blue. That was a flip. And Maryland went But blue, Massachusetts a is a blue state. So, well, not as blue as Maryland is, but mm. it's still blue nonetheless. Um uh, so, yeah, you know, we really are. I hate that we even talk country. about this like this. It's red. It's blue. It's it's so ridiculous. It's a whole bunch of, of regular working class peons that are serving at the at the <laughs> like serving at the pleasure of a handful of rich people and fighting amongst ourselves. But Colonello is absolutely correct. Fetterman is the answer. Yeah, like that is the answer. 
he's the kind of, and I don't, I'm not saying him necessarily in particular, although it could be, but someone like that is who we really need to lead a populist movement and really try to get the Democrats back to being a labor party. Um, and anybody like somebody like him is the only kind of character that can go up against the fake right populist. You need somebody who comes off as populist. They don't have to be all the way to the left on all the social crap, but they need to be a left populist. TM is absolutely correct. And the problem there we know that. is that Fetterman is actually somebody who, in his victory uh, speech, I guess he wrote up, is talking about the importance of dealing with climate. The Republicans have to come to the table on climate and Democrats have to come to the table on energy. Now, I do not agree with fracking at all. It doesn't need to be done. But I do agree with nuclear. And I think that that is the fastest way that we get off of coal and natural gas. If we are going to make that happen, then, you know, good use of humor, Travers. And yeah, uh, Prince from Minnesota, which elected the only independent governor, which was Jesse Ventura. So the body point being Prince was from somewhat of a purple state. Well, it is purple rain. So, well, I'm just saying, like, if it's not red or it's blue, it's purple. We're very purple. So I appreciate it. So we have a friend that you guys all know who is coming on to talk about the elections, but also talk about an article he just wrote. Of course, he is somebody who knows a thing or two about the Koch brothers. We yeah. Can I just say very quickly before we before we bring Walker in, you're not going to get elected in Pennsylvania if you're against fracking and you're not going to get elected in Texas if you threaten to take their guns. So anybody who thought Beto, I saw somebody mentioning Beto at some point. It was never going to happen. Don't as worry. soon as he said that, we're like, ah, there goes that for him. Well, don't worry. Beto will, I'm sure, try again against Ted Cruz. Good luck with years, that. So. He, you put it in writing. You want to take their guns. They're never going to elect you in Texas. Not going to happen. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when you make a complete political blunder. The Democrats have guns there. there. The Democrats are very gun-toting in Texas. I assure you, it's not even a partisan thing. They're not giving up their guns. When you are pegged as a particular type of political figure, one that comes off in a very elitist way and is also from a family or married into a family, I should say, that is very wealthy. Uh, you know, the the Democratic Party is seen as the party of bougie liberals in big cities. That's a problem. Bougie liberals in big cities. Well, exist. that's who that's who the faces of the party are. That's what that's, that's the top of the party. I mean, that's not how all Democrats are, but no, but that is what the face. Yeah. So without further ado, he obviously has a very important article to discuss. He's been yes. on our show multiple times because he just knows a thing or two about progressive politics. You can never have enough conversation with good people that are out there. Walker Bragman, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to see hey. you. Hey, Walker, what's going on? What are you working on? Well, my apology for for not doing this sooner and 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 the uh, the sort of tag that you and I have been in. I I, I am sorry. I'm here now. So, it's all so yeah, good. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, I just I did just put out an article uh, with the Center for Media and Democracy about a lawsuit that is ongoing. And there's there's a lot of talk about this because uh, The Intercept sort of touched on it in a recent story about uh, the Biden administration's efforts to combat misinformation online. Um, right. And. The all of the, the sort of revelations, I guess uh, we can call them revelations um, about in, in that story sort of come from this lawsuit, which is being it's being uh, brought by several two two Republican uh, states attorneys general in 
uh, Louisiana and Missouri. And joining the lawsuit uh, are a number of individuals who have spread COVID misinformation online, very prominent spreaders of, of COVID inf- misinformation. Um, and they're being represented by a law firm or a litigation group, I should say, uh, called the, the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Now, the New Civil Liberties Alliance is a benignly named uh, litigation group that gets about half of its funding from Charles Koch's Influence Network. Mm. It's It has fought against the CDC's eviction moratorium. It fought against uh, the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. It's represented several Koch-backed organizations in the past, including Americans for Prosperity, which is Charles Koch's flagship operation. Um, so, and, and it, it consistently fights on, on the side of, of big business. Like this is a legal pit bull for Charles Koch's interests. The, the cases that it, cho- it's, it, it chooses cases, uh, very carefully. It represents it, it's, it's work is, is it does it pro bono. Um, and these lawsuits, they are strategic lawsuits. Now, the story uh, about Bi- the Bi- basically what's happening with the Biden administration, let's start here, uh, is that they they are trying to combat online misinformation uh, during a pandemic. Um, they're also trying to combat election misinformation and disinformation, be- seeing it as a, as a threat to democracy. Now, these efforts do go back to the Trump administration, um, and they have continued under, under Biden. And what they amount to essentially is uh, the administration working with social media companies to flag content and say, hey, this this is misleading content. Will you will you take it down? Can you not disseminate this? And social media companies have been pretty reluctant to work with the administration, but they have taken some content down, thus the lawsuit. Um so that's really the extent of the efforts. There, there's no, there's no, uh, they're not being compelled. There's no threat of, re- there's no regulation. Um, Congress hasn't acted. The president hasn't taken any executive orders to, to compel cooperation from these companies. So um, my article examines the the case. The, the, Missouri, the suit is uh, Missouri v. Biden. And it, I look at the case and I look at sort of the actors behind it Um the a couple of the plaintiffs being represented by the New Civil Liberties Alliance are, unsurprisingly, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Martin Kulldorff, two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I know that you've heard me talk about before, because the Great Barrington Declaration was a document that repre- that that recommended governments issue uh, mitigation strat- broad mitigation strategies in favor of what they deem focused protection. Uh, for for very vulnerable p- communities, it's sort of nebulously defined. But really, get everything back to work and let natural immunity be the path to um, to herd immunity. Now, this document does not represent a mainstream view of what we should do in the face of the pandemic. The public health community was pretty uh, alarmed by this. This is a novel virus with uncertain uh, or un- a lot of unknowns, a lot of unknown long term effects. And, uh, th- you know, you just you just let that rip through the population. It's, it could have unforeseen consequences. And in public health, you have the precautionary principle that says you should err on the side of caution. 
So that's the lawsuit is they are bringing this lawsuit because some of their content online where they have downplayed the seriousness of the virus um, said that masking doesn't work, which is not what the body of evidence shows. Uh, they've, they've played footsie with the anti-vax movement. Like that's, that's, that's who's bringing this lawsuit. And that's the kind of information that the Biden administration is try is asking social media companies asking to remove. So that's what the article is about. Uh, it's in the Center for Media and Democracy, exposed by CMD. Speaking with Walker Bragman of Opt Out News, you know, I, I do think uh, when it sorry, comes to I know the that was long. Well, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no it's, it's, I know okay. that was long. I, I'm sorry. Right. Well, the whole thing with the start with the beginning with the name of it, like it just sounds wrong. Like whenever I hear groups like that, I know that that's not right. Well, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, anyway, uh, what I was trying to say, I don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> that's live, that's live uh, podcasting for you. Uh, what I was going to say is one of the big problems with masking is that it's not that masks don't work. It's that only certain masks work. And the N95 mask in particular, which is considered the standard mask for which we need, is not a mask that everybody is obviously able to get their hands on and is obviously using. When we're using these cloth masks, obviously that's not really effective, but what would be sort of your idea or solution regarding people being able to have access to the type of masks that really would prevent the spread, not just of COVID, but just diseases in general? Like as far as I'm concerned, one thing that I've always noticed, especially when you travel and oftentimes when you're on an airplane, that's probably the one place where you really should be wearing a mask because that's where things tend to travel uh, the easiest. And if people were wearing the proper mask, I bet there would be not just a COVID, it would be just sickness in general <clears throat> would be cut down significantly. Yeah, you know, so so we do know that, that masking it does reduce transmission, although certain masks are much more protective than others. As you mentioned, the, N the N95s are are very protective. KN95s work as well. Um, really, the, the high quality masks are, are what we should should be doing. I, I I think that the federal government should not only be producing the, these masks. Uh, I think it should be distributing uh, to everybody, and obviously requiring them for for public transportation and, and air travel. Uh, that does uh, frustrate sort of uh, business interests that, that have opposed masking. Um, the, the Coke network did, did mobilize and, and, and to combat mask mandates and, and um, get the, this uh, to combat sort of the uh, public health response from, from the CDC. Uh, so yeah, you, I, I, basic things now are politicized. I'm sure that there are going to be people in your comments who, look at this and say, well, the masking doesn't work. And that's what I've heard. And, you know, so we screw have, this we and have, screw you. And we've got a very libertarian for people. Well, it's, we have a very wide spectrum of people, we do. which I like. I do. It's, it's every, it, it's everywhere. It could be, yeah. it could be even, you know, my own audience is, 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 uh, there it's, it's a mixed bag, but you, you get, you get like, people have gotten very attached to these positions and unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there that's been spread deliberately by motivated actors um, that's harming people. I mean, the, the, the body of evidence supports masking. 
the body of evidence supports mitigation policies and doesn't have, you know, the, we talk about harms, the, there's dubious evidence to show harms for things like masking. So people can calm down. <laughs> Sorry. Well, here would be my, well, here's where most people actually do agree, believe it or not, is on universal health care. Now, how much of a difference do you think the pandemic would have been oh. if we had universal health care? Because I do think a lot of the reasons why people do not actually are not really willing to do anything is because of the lack of trust in government. And I don't blame them because our government is captured by corporate special interests. But if we had a universal health care system, that would change things significantly. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think Medicare for all is is an obvious solution. One of the recommendations that the World Health Organization put out immediately when the pandemic hit was remove cost barriers to care. We live in a country now where where people go without needed care. We are the population is less healthy, more vulnerable to this virus because we don't have um, you know, people don't have access to preventative care. Uh, they have to they have to balance costs. They have to con make considerations like, oh, do I want to pay for a doctor visit or am I going to be able to afford rent this month? Like that's that's not that's not good. Um, but and, and yes, mistrust of government has been has been high. Really, it's been high since the 1970s. I mean, the Watergate scandal plummeted. Uh, Watergate in Vietnam really, really crushed the public faith in, in government. And I don't, it has never recovered. Really. It has never recovered since. So well, you know, we're dealing there worthy. Nobody's been there. That's worthy of redemption. We're dealing with um, generational distrust here of, of government. And as the, with the advent of neoliberalism, people haven't had much of a reason to trust their government because government has been taking things away or, or making it hard. Like government has become less functional and less responsive to people. We unleashed the, the floodgates for, for money in politics or the Supreme court did in 1976 with the ruling in Buckley versus Vallejo. And that made government responsive to one demographic of people. So I don't, I don't fault people for um, being skeptical of, of, of government. I do think that there is a knee-jerk sort of reaction, like when, they, when, when people hear the, the Biden administration is trying to combat online disinformation and the response is like, oh my God, this is a huge scandal. This is like PRISM or, um, you know, this is like the Snowden leaks. And I, I, don't, I don't think that that's true. I mean- this is not this is not dystopia. What we're facing is a public health crisis, a once in a century public health crisis that's left a million Americans dead and seven percent of the population suffer like debilitated. This is a serious issue. And we're learning that the that even mild infections with covid can have long term consequences and put you at higher risk for serious ailments and problems. So, you know, you, you want you want government to to look out for people in a crisis. That is what responsive government is. Now, I'm not saying that the Biden administration is responsive government. We still don't have workplace safety standards for every workplace. We're not distributing masks to people. We're not even leveling with people about the risks of long COVID or getting, or getting infected. If, if this administration really did care, you would, you would have a public messaging campaign leveling with people about the risks of COVID, but we've prioritized the economy. That's, that's the, 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 the real story here with the pandemic consistently 
is business getting what it wants at the expense of human life, at the expense of workers. And, and, and that's sort of accepted throughout society. I mean, take a look at any of the coverage of China's COVID policies. Now, I'm not advocating for China's Communist. COVID policies. I'm not advocating for that. But if you read the New York Times, you'll see that it's like China could have been a center for growth. And 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 like down midway through the piece, you'll see, well, actually, the people are pretty content with the zero COVID policies and it has saved lives. But like the main focus is like, when are they going to give this up? Got to give it up. We got our mass death out of the way early. They're just delaying the inevitable. It's like they just it, it speaks to a lack of appreciation and care for labor um, under the neoliberal paradigm. That's what I think the story of the pandemic is. There's a few things, but what's interesting, we had Max Alvarez on last night and we were talking about, he has a new book out. And what it is, is he, he went on the road and spoke to all different frontline, different working people about their year during the pandemic, like what that year was like, like, it's really interesting. And it really is a complete lack of respect for labor. That is definitely like this huge theme but I would also argue the point that we have no social safety net. And have we, if we had a social safety net, then people wouldn't have to be engaged in working during a pandemic, right? Like there would be other things that would be protecting us as well as just, you know, pro-labor stance, right? You know, the funny thing here is that the groups that are fighting for this pandemic freedom, you know, that, that get free, that, that some people think is populism, those groups are the same groups fighting to make sure that we don't have a social safety net that are trying to get rid of things like Medicare and Medicaid and social security. Like these, the interests are very, are very clear. If you pay attention to who is saying what and where the money is coming from, and it's all publicly available, you don't have to take my word for it. This is the great part about this. You can go and you can look at the civil new civil liberties Alliance. You can look at their website. You can look at the things that they're saying you can look at the Heritage Foundation or the Hoover Institution or the American Institute for Economic Research or Americans for Prosperity, and you can see the positions that those groups are staking out. And you can go to SourceWatch and find out where their funding is coming from. Or you can look at their 990s and find out where the, the money is coming from. Uh, ProPublica has a, has a directory of 990s. You should go and look at it. That's this is all publicly available information. It's verifiable. It is not difficult. Take a look. If you don't believe, if you don't believe me, go look at it, please. Yeah. What, I, what I do believe, and this is just, again, this is the, I'm libertarian left. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I've been vaccinated. Uh, I live a healthy life. I think we, there's two rules of thought here that I have. Number one, I still believe in, in, in the libertarian form of government from the standpoint of, this is what works. This is what will help you. But we cannot force you to take it. Now, we can certainly put regulations like, again, you're in New York City, so, you know, there are certain restrictions that were put. But whether you agree with them or not, I think people should be allowed to have a choice. The other problem that we have, which is, again, as you said, staked a lot in the fact that people are looking to profit in various ways. If we had a universal health care system, we would not be in this predicament. But if we also had a real social safety net, one where we valued workers in this country, 
we would have seen a lot less death and a lot more productivity in terms of our ability to get through this problem. We're still suffering from it today. And I think that this is a great transition to what just happened last night, because you already see corporate media cooking up their ridiculously stupid Monday morning quarterback reasoning behind why, even though it looks like right now the GOP is going to take over both houses, but it's not really that big of a loss. <laughs> and so only the Democrats, Walker, can lose and say they won. Well, they'll blame the left. Oh, of course they will. Uh, They've already got a number of them out there blaming Bernie for Mandela Barnes losing to Ron Johnson in Wisconsin because we all knew that was coming. They'll blame the left. Uh, How do you kind of see the way this unfolds and perhaps the the misunderstanding that so many people are going to have about why this election unfolded the way that it did? Because as far as I can tell, and Jen, you've been saying it all night, Roe v. Wade and the kids really saved the Democrats. Because if it wasn't for that- It would have been worse. Because everything on the GOP side and independents especially all indicated that the economy slash inflation was their top issue. But because it was so overwhelming with Democratic voters, especially Democratic women and understandably so, that Roe v. Wade is what drove them to the polls. But I'm thinking there's such a misunderstanding about what we could have, kind of like with the COVID pandemic and everything that came around it, we're, we're just looking at it in, in very small marginal advantages going forward. And that's just not going to work anymore, at least as far as I can see. What are your thoughts on everything that's transpired over the last day? Well, you know, I'm I'm cautiously, I'm actually cautiously optimistic. And I'm usually the person who's like, everything is terrible and everything is, you know, going to hell. Um I think that the, you know, the progressive wing of the party grew last night, at least in the, in the House of Representatives. The Republicans were, were expected to have a much better night than they did. That's good. So there was a cost to um, overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think I don't disagree when Democrats say democracy in America is imperiled. I don't disagree that when Democrats say that the Republican party has taken an authoritarian turn. Um, But when you're facing that situation and you're facing an increasingly authoritarian Republican party, and when you're facing uh, a Republican party that isn't moored by uh, an appreciation or consider cares, it doesn't care at all about, about democratic norms um, in, in comparison to how much it cares about power. You don't let, uh, a pandemic uh, go go by and start stripping away economic assistance to people while the, while the pandemic is still happening. <laughs> and you don't tell people just move on and accept life as it is, accept sort of mass infection. Um, because you're, what you're really saying is accept a lower quality of life than you had in 2019. Accept more risk to you and your family than you had in 2019. The Democrats didn't send out $2,000 checks. They promised to do that. They didn't send them out. They sent out $1,400 checks and then claimed that the $600 checks that went out in December with Donald Trump's name on them, that that was the first part. It was really incredible, really tremendous. I did a great job. Wow, you do a really good Trump impression. Yeah, 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 yeah. We know, we know. Wow. 
<laughs> All right, now you've asked for it. Now he's going to give you the whole spiel. Yeah, wait. You're a really terrible person for coming on the show and telling people about my vaccine. It's my vaccine. I did a really great job with it. <laughs> and I just want to come on because I'm going to be coming on a lot more frequently because- Yay me. Oh, totally incredible, right? We're going to make America great again. Again. And you know why? Because that desanctimonious, Ron desanctimonious, he's <laughs> a really, really terrible ingrate. He never appreciated what I did for I him. I love the arms. I made, oh, he's got the- Oh, I totally made him governor. I made him governor of this wonderful, incredible, free state of Florida. I made it free. Not you, Ronnie Pants. It's totally about me. <laughs> I made Florida what it is. Believe me when I tell you. We made a big, beautiful vaccine. <laughs> People got it. And if they didn't want to take it, that's on them. But I took it. It made me great. I'm a totally unhealthy person. I like to eat my McDonald's. Jen, you've seen how much I like to uh, eat that. And if you're not a healthy person, you better get your vaccine. It's the only way you're going to stay alive. Believe me when I tell you. But Walker, I don't know why you're here. We totally solved the problem. The, va- the, the total <laughs> pandemic, it's totally over. And I stopped it, believe me. So we're coming back in 24. We are going to make America great again. Again. So make sure you're supporting Trump 24. If you support that Ron Sanctimonious, oh, right. you're totally going to pay for it. Believe me. <laughs> that's totally fake news. You don't support that. Seriously. That's, that's, that's wild. Um, God, where, where were we? <laughs> where were we before Trump? He called him Ron DeSanctimonious. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> I'm actually disappointed. I was expecting like a, a better, a better nickname, but I said that too. I said that's all. The, that's all he's got. Ron to sanctimonious, Ron, like Ron to Satan. Ron to that. See, that I don't know what that would do. work better. Like if he just came out and said Ron to Satan, he's totally turning Florida into Ex- hell. Yep. Ron, Ron to stupid. You know, like whatever. Know. Like, you know, the truth it's is, all listen, so ridiculous. We're not, we may we may not have the biggest YouTube channel, no. but it was clearly big enough to get Trump's people's attention because I was saying, "Make America great again." Again. Like over a year ago. Long before he started saying it. all of a sudden, he releases like, when Trump was finally starting to get serious about running again, he released like one of those Trump 45, you know, one page letters from Mar-a-Lago that specifically said on it, make America great again, again. And I'm thinking, okay, no one but us said that. Well, except for you could also think he's also incredibly small and simple minded. And that was really the only thing that he could come up with was adding that. (laughs) Like you could say, like, that's the more likely. What what is that? That's, that's MAGA. (laughs) Exactly. The totally remember when he said the N word. So you you didn't you you took away that. Look, we still don't know what's happening. And and um, to be honest, for me, if Katie Porter loses her seat, I'm like beside myself. Like that to me is a huge loss that's not being talked about, and they're just sitting on it and they're not doing enough to help. Like now it's too late, but like they only gave her three hundred thousand dollars to combat eight million Republican dollars. And you can't. I think there was a lot. Oh, yeah, I'm you sorry. can't tell me that that wasn't deliberate. You cannot tell me we can't lose that her. they don't want her out of there because for both parties that are controlled by corporate interests, she is bad for business because people really like her, even those normie Dems who are okay with this idea that, well, the Democrats have to take the corporate money because the big bad GOP is so damn scary that we have to fight them that way. No, they really 
really like her. And I think she's probably the best Congress representative, congressional representative yeah. we've got. And to me, I think that we're waiting for an opportunity to let her get knocked off. And the reason I'm firmly believe that that is the case is because they've been very, very quiet about it. They are not even addressing this race. And it is literally neck and neck with about half the votes oh. counted out in, in, in her district in California. You know, I, I my my constant um, struggle is between the the is it is it just sort of incompetence or malevolence? Um, Me too. And, and it's it's hard to to sort of to to make those those calls. Um, both could be true, but but I, I think I just I just I just can't help but wonder what would have happened if the child tax credit hadn't expired, if they hadn't let pandemic unemployment assistance go, if they had fought like hell for the eviction moratorium, and if Biden had canceled more student debt, or maybe if they legalized cannabis, or you know, like, I feel like if you're, if, you, if you're saying that democracy is under threat and your opponents are the, are the threat, you, you do more. You have to do more. It's not enough to just kind of say, you know, oh, well, we couldn't do it. We couldn't get it done this time. But give us power again, and then we'll do it next time. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but there, use no, the power when you have it. There is a great meme from an old Simpsons episode. Oh, my God. Well, of course, the Simpsons are Walker. Yes, yeah, shoot me. Classic uh, old school Simpsons. Are we cool with that? Yeah, we're good with that. Do yeah. you watch The Simpsons, Walker? No, the old. Yeah, I, love, I love The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. good God! Oh, come on, I'm okay. so on. I'm an island. It's a classic. Uh, you gotta help us, Doc. We've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. that is so like this situation. It's it's just an older generation of Democrats. They came up during the Reagan years. They bought into sort of neoliberalism and. And I, I don't think I, I I don't think that there's like just outright I, I think that there's less outright malevolence and more just sort of limits to their imagination and what they and and their their vision for the system. Like this is the system they came up in. They know it. Donors matter. You got to balance donor interest with with getting stuff done. And you know. It will pretty much weather and and govern itself. Like I, I, I think there's a lot of complacency. Yeah, yes, complacency. That's exactly right. But and I don't so, agree. I do not agree because again, the system is broken and the system is bought and paid for by corporate interests. And as long as that is the case, as long as the funding is precipitated by this notion of I will not be able to support Sands' cause because the people who are allowing me to stay in power do not want this is a really big problem. Oh, it's a and crisis. That, it's a crisis of democracy for sure. Yeah. But I, I don't think that I, I think that people are that, that have been in power for so long, like like Nancy Pelosi came up in this system. She, this is what she knows. This is what she understands. I don't oh, think yeah, there's malevolence there. I, I don't there. think, but I don't think Nancy Pelosi genuinely doesn't care about like abortion rights. I think, I think Pelosi does that. She doesn't want that to be her legacy that she was on the side that couldn't get abortion rights. And then Republicans stripped it away. I, I don't think and that that's campaigns for Quayar in San Antonio, the same week. Roe v. Wade you're, you're right. Overturned. You're right. But I think that's more of a, that's more of a, he's my colleague. I know him and it's a, it's strategic. It's not strategic, 
But, but that is, you're way too I, I think that these people are very limited in their in their vision, and I think we just need a new generation of leaders to come up because well, let's well let's leave well let's wait leave a on second. This I just have to say one thing. If yeah. it was that right, and you're right, like if it was that that they're just out of it and they don't really know what to do and they're out of ideas, okay. But they just seem to sit there with the insider trading and make a fortune, and it seems very purposeful, and intentional to me. So they do things with that conflict of interest, and that makes it be intentional. They're they're not looking out for us. They're looking out for them. And that is the intent, and to keep themselves sitting there. I don't think that they really care one way or the other. I don't think Nancy Pelosi cares one way or the other about women's rights. I think she cares about her bottom line and her power, and she'll do and say whatever it is to keep that way it is. And and I just don't think she has take, a position on it. And I'll take it a step further. You know, our congresswoman, who is one of the very worst this country <clears throat> has, you know, Wasserman Schultz is one of the biggest beneficiaries of insider trading. And the things that she has done to systematically destroy the Florida Democratic Party, and it has been destroyed. That's not to say that DeSantis, you know, wasn't going to be stopped anyway. But the Democrats definitely assisted in a significant way in ensuring that he got where he got. And now he's on the precipice of potentially becoming the next president. If I'm betting money on the table right now, I am betting on DeSantis. And I believe that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the GOP, unfortunately, have painted themselves as the anti-establishment party. And as a result of that, the Democratic establishment that still runs the party, led by Pelosi, led by Clyburn, led by Hoyer, led by Wasserman Schultz and the like, they embrace being the party of Washington. And well, not let, let me just say, if Nancy Pelosi were to take a tack and be like, I'm an anti-establishment candidate. Would you buy into that? <laughs> Would you believe that? No, because she no, of course not. So, uh, she, so, she's well, right. 100% you can't the embodiment of the establishment. But at this point, it's very purposeful. It isn't clueless. It isn't hapless. It isn't she just doesn't know any better. We're, we're so far past that. She is purposefully fleecing people. She is. This is like a very longstanding con of a whole bunch of wealthy people getting wealthy and laughing at us while they go have fun with each other after dark. That's the whole thing that's going on. Her and Mitch McConnell, I bet they laugh all the way to the bank about this. But, but I think this is I think this is like old Washington. Like this is like the, yeah. the, 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 the Pelosi looks at it, I think. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not Nancy Pelosi. I don't know Nancy Pelosi, but I would imagine that somebody like Nancy Pelosi looks at it and says that this is the system that I know and I can work in this system. And this system, I do benefit from it. And I've clawed my way up. I am now at the top of this system. And these upstarts don't know how things work. And they don't know how to get stuff done in this system. They want to change the system. But, like, this system is steady and should and should remain. And I, I, I do think that, you know, the insider trading is absolutely a perk, uh, considered a perk of the job. And I don't think there's much will in Washington to get, tend to get rid of that. And it should absolutely be, be get, be destroyed because it's, it's, it breeds corruption, but like and somebody should, then somebody should run for president in the near future, in the next six months. Mm-hmm. And I think you could run for president just on the idea of I'm against insider trading of Congress <laughs> And you know how much juice that candidate probably would get? They could probably be a no-name person for all I care. But if they're going to talk about the real issue, one of the real issues that unites the country, 
all the people that I have spoken to over the past several weeks, whether out at the polls, we canvassed for a number of local candidates, nonpartisan candidates, mind you, and the new mayor of the town that we both happen to live in is a really solid guy. And we would talk to people. The biggest uniter with the most red MAGA Republican and the most blue, blue. Democrat is anti-corruption. People well, of course, because everybody everybody sort of implicitly knows that that the that the system is has become corrupt, and it really all traces back. I, I talk about it all the time, but the it traces back to Buckley. You unleash money in politics. That's what this is. What you get, you get a system with with that that caters to the wealthy or so. So what, what happens now is you have to either be rich to run for office or you have to sort of cater to, to wealthy people because the, you've got to raise a lot of money fast because elections, the cost of running for office as rich people spend money on elections, the cost goes up. So in order to, to get the money to run, you either need to be excellent with your ground game, like, like Bernie Sanders was and get, get all those grassroots donations or you just suck up to some rich people and you can get the same amount of money or maybe less, but, you know, a, a substantial amount of money from a handful of people. You, your campaign can be made like Peter Thiel made uh, a number of candidates. Blake th- Masters in Arizona. You know, like th- he made Blake, he made, he made Blake Masters in, in Arizona. hundred percent. Yes, he did. Like this is, this is the system that we have. It has to change. But I, I think that the way to do it is to, to target very specific things like go after go after Buckley, try throw as many court cases as you can to to to, to challenge Buckley, try to regu- impose new rules on nonprofits um, in order to maintain your tax exemption. You can't um, you can't engage in political activity like like start. Start challenging See, that. That would hurt us. That would hurt what we do, interestingly. I mean, we're a, nonprofit, we're a nonprofit, but we're a 501c4 because we do engage in political activity because we give money to all the non-corporate candidates. And so we do do like we do that. Well, and that's well, important because otherwise we'd have nothing. It'd be a small sacrifice. Exactly. Well, comparatively, like. Yeah. Like the what what you I mean. Look, every, everybody now has has a foundation or, or whatever. The opt out media foundation is a five hundred one c three, right? So you donations can't are tax deductible. Um, right, but you but can't engage in political. We um, can't engage in political activity. Well, we're a media yeah. foundation, so we we're, we wouldn't anyway. But um, but if you want to break down the the power structures that exist today the real influence networks, you got to go after nonprofits. You got to go after political nonprofits. Uh, you got to go after money in politics. If you, if you, if we were able to get Buckley overturned and we were able to impose new rules on nonprofits, you would undo the entire conservative movement overnight. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, wealth, wealth, wealth is a lot like um, it, it's a lot like that scene in Jurassic Park where he's like, life finds a way. Like they would, they would find a way to fight back, but that would be a huge setback. You would nullify groups like Americans for Prosperity. Um, oh yeah. That's uh, 
Uh, they're not really for prosperity. There's a hint. No. Right. Well, well, it's all the all the groups. They all named these like really, you know, Americans well, for Walker, prosperity, the new civil know, liberties alliance. But we all know that these groups, it's like, why did Charlie Kirk start Turning Point USA? Because it's all about making money. It, it's all about how many people can I hoodwink into convincing them that giving their money to me is a good thing. The Carnival Barker has been around for hundreds of years. The traveling circus has been around for hundreds of years. And so when the circus comes to town, there's always one carnival barker who has some snake oil that they're going to sell and they're going to do their best, you know, tap dance, if you will, to get as many people to buy that snake oil. Donald Trump is the greatest snake oil salesman we've ever seen. And so here we are today with a lot of people that are either imitators or ones that have long come before him that did it one way, may have been effective, maybe not as much. And, you know, he broke the mold, if you will. And so here we are just trying to have some semblance of a democracy and a foreign word at this point. But I think we can close with this. The only way we're going to get there is through a coalition of labor and the environmental movement. And there are people within the labor environmental movement that are going to have to accept the fact that there are people that are going to lock arms with you that believe in a living wage, that believe in universal health care, that believe in a clean energy grid, that believe in ending the endless wars, that believe in real criminal justice reform. But they're sick of the overwoke crap. They are going to vote for Trump or DeSantis. And the only way we're getting there is if people accept the fact that I may not agree with you on that. But I sure as hell agree with you on this policy. And I know this for a fact because at the polls last night, I had a very long conversation with a gentleman who is a firefighter, is in the firefighter union, and is a very big Trump and DeSantis supporter. So as far as I can tell, if we're going to get there, it's going to take this sort of coalition that is going to begrudgingly, in some instances, have to accept the fact that there are people that we will have to lock arms with, that we don't all agree with. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, I I think this this is sort of a, a, a like a tilting at windmills a little bit because I, I on the ground the big fights for you know the let's say uh, abortion rights these these ballot measures the, the the people of all backgrounds who agree on the thing they do come together that is happening it's happen the labor movement is happening people of different beliefs are coming together. I just don't think that, you know, nationally, at a national level, the response from progressive left to the, the fear mongering around woke, you know, politics should be like, yeah, you know, it's whatever. Because at the end of the day, trans people, the existence of trans people shouldn't be a political issue. It shouldn't Agreed. be something, no. you know, like, it, it, trans acceptance doesn't hurt America in any way. It doesn't make our society worse that that we that we become more accepting of people like that's nonsense. And I I'm just gonna you, I'm, I'm going to give you a great great point. Like and this is something that I'm is so, I'm, so I'm so tired of hearing no, the, 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 the rapping of Republicans against like oh these these you know they're like they're groomers they're they're wokesters like that's not a problem. You know what a problem looks like. It looks like rising sea levels and 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 the Zika virus moving north. It looks like tropical diseases in New York City in the next decade. Like that's what a that's problem. That's why we is. need to not worry. That's why we need to focus but, on those but, issues. But to get there, I'm not willing. I'm not willing to 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 leave behind 
uh, like trans people. And, you and be like, to. you know what? You're fodder because I need to form this alliance. To, why to are get- they fodder? They're not fodder. But what I'm saying is like, if I go to, let's say like an Elks club, whatever, and it's very right and very, but they believe in a living wage. Well, I'm going to work with them on that. We're not going to talk about the trans issue because quite honestly, I'm not really concerned with their opinion on that. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying that we can work on economic justice issues and that's its own thing. And that's what keeps us all, we're all in the same boat. That's very, the point. Very important well, point. I, I, you know, I, I agree. Like if you're working towards minimum wage, work toward minimum wage. But when the time comes and it's like, it's it's like they're they're trying to criminalize uh, transition care and 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 throw parents of trans kids in jail or, or doctors who perform gender affirming care throw them in jail. Better be out there with them too on the front lines. Like Absolutely. you know, people, you have to be ready to put your body on the line because because they might be coming for trans people today. It might be black people tomorrow or Jews the next. Like it's right. there. They, this this right this right wing movement that exists today needs an enemy, and it won't stop. Like trans people are less than one percent of the population. One. It's they're coming. They might be coming for you next. So but I you, fight them too, right? Like so, I go to that's my fight too. Every much is it, but that doesn't mean that I can't work with people who aren't on my same team on the broader issue. And we also have to really, and we also have to hone in on who the real problem. Or the the um, the disruptors are the people who are really causing this problem are people like Matt Walsh who was just on Joe Rogan the other day, and Joe Rogan asked him point blank, "How many kids under the age of eighteen are taking puberty puberty blockers in the United States that have been prescribed that for themselves?" And Walsh said, "It's in the millions." And so Jamie, his producer. Just he had had enough. He had he to said, look it up. I'm not going to I'm not letting you get away with this. So he looked it up and he said it's between four and five thousand. That's it. So to treat this like it's a it is They're a so manu- freaking it out is a it. manufactured crisis is what. And it those is. are decisions, by the way, that are between doctors and patients. It's, <laughs> it, they're very case specific, like. Like puberty blockers are not just for, you know, transitioning. It's it's for kids who have, you know, have met like medical conditions that require like like this is these are decisions that that are best left to the medical professionals and between parents and of, of, you know, minors and doctors to make the best decision for their families holding this up like. They hold this up as as like a threat to the country that this is dangerous that this is that this is ruining like it's it's just finding a scapegoat and directing all the frustration that's out there which has has gotten worse in in during through the pandemic you know people have the the economy is harder uh, people people are uh, th- there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of people have died lost loved ones there it's a very vulnerable time for the country and they're taking that and they're directing it at at um teachers trans people like they're targeting group they're targeting groups and holding up like oh they're teaching your kid to hate america in school they're teaching your kid to that you know gay people exist and they're grooming your kid like fuck that any Fuck excuse. that. It is so dangerous and so morally bankrupt. Yeah. It, if your political project 
depends on holding up a, a vulnerable group of people in right. this country as an enemy and saying that, you know, if your political project depends on that, your political project deserves to fail. Yeah, but what I'm just saying is, so for example, if we're looking at a Venn diagram, let's say, right? So not all Republicans, for example, or people that would vote for, say, DeSantis, believe that there's this whole group of woke rumors out there trying to change our children and transgender. That's a small group. And I'm just saying that it's like, I combat it every time I come around it. We unfortunately just had somebody elected to our local school board who was one of those people, which really sucks. Um, but I combat that misinformation all the time, but that is not like the majority of let's say Republicans. It just isn't. That's not any more than the overwoke sanctimonious people are a majority of Democrats, right? Like that's just not the, that's not the, the majority. It's not and, the and ultimately that's where weeding through the BS that gets us away from talking about the real issues that are affecting our daily lives. That's what it's about. And that's where the message is the strongest because even the most fear mongered people will find their way through the bullshit if they're willing to listen. Now there are too many far gones out there. Absolutely. But there's also a lot of people who just have a fear of the unknown. And once they know that it's really not what you think it is, there's grifters everywhere. And there's grifters on both sides. Our goal here is to try to create the biggest grassroots labor movement that this country has had in a very, very long time. That's the goal. Connect all those dots because it's really a class war. Yeah. And the transgender community is just being used as pawns in a political theater. And they're part, as of, part this, of the class and war. And they're part of this class war. The goal is to avoid talking about where the real problems lie. And so that's our fight. And you know, your work I is just, very- I just feel like you have to challenge it though. When they're like, you know, oh, these, these woke Democrats, like, well, what we does do that mean? We do challenge them. No, 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 I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying that yeah. I, it just in general, it's a, it's a, it's a general you. I'm not, I'm not directing well, right. this. It's, I see it. What I'm saying is both sides are constantly pointing out the extremes on both sides. So that's that's the problem. And yeah, there are people that I consider very overwoke. I just they're, don't they're just think so that the extremes I just don't think that the extremes that were the extremes on both sides they're don't they're not equivalent. One, you know, well, on one side you have people who are like Bernie Sanders is a, is a sexist. Yeah, I think that that's ridiculous. But on the other side you have people who are like we should be we should be jailing the you know trans the kids the parents of trans kids who provide gender affirming care or we should be um we should be hanging journalists like the extre the extremes are just not the same no, like I on the one side you have very you have actual fascists and they they represent they are not the majority of of you know of voters in this country but they are a growing and dangerous constituency. And yeah. on the other side, you have like the libs. <laughs> but the problem no. is, is what you have to see is, and I agree, they're not equal and they're definitely not on the same level, but those libs are fanning the flames and creating more of the people on the right by their obnoxious, sanctimonious crap. Yeah. 
I also don't agree with that. To the right. I meet these people all the time. I've met so many people that they just cannot deal with the Democrats anymore. Maybe it's a difference in Florida versus New York. It might be, but like it's so- The reason- I don't disagree with you that those that that some of those folks can can be alienating and definitely were like in the 2016 primary and and whatnot. Like it's it's just, whatever I, I you know, I, I saw it. I, I understand what you're talking about. But but I want to stress that the that the right, this conservative movement would be making a big deal of of these of these things anyway, would be that that, that is that is how this the right wing comes to power that is how they they mobilize that is the only thing holding the conservative movement together is opposition to government from various groups including you know capital because it doesn't want to be regulated um including um uh bigots because they don't want government telling them who they have to interact with or who their businesses have to serve and 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 religious zealots who don't want government telling them that they can't have prayer in public schools like the the these groups would be would be holding up scapegoats uh, and and fear mongering about woke, you know, liberalism and trans acceptance uh, anyway, because that's key to their movement. So I just I, I feel like I just don't even think it's worth talking about in the same breath. Like, yes, the libs are could be obnoxious. Sure. On the other side are genuine like threats to humanity. (laughs) Absolutely. But how do you got to be able to combat them and you need to do it with reason because they're not going to just go away. And the way to combat them is not just to sort of ban them and censor them because again, they're not going to go away. So I just think that there's a better way to handle it. And the uh, the problem is, is that most people just don't want to even address it. They just want to call them deplorables and walk away. But that's not solving the problem, right? Like there's got to be a way to deal with this problem. And it really is the responsibility of the left to combat the right. And well, we don't have an actual left. Them. You, you can just, you sh- like we should be disrupting, right? Like Absolutely. far right organizing that, that is, that is a presents a genuine like threat. Like we know that, that far right groups are organizing online and, you know, attacks are being planned online and, you know, we know that that's happening. That should be disrupted. Social media platforms absolutely should target that and not allow that. Like that is not that. I don't think that's censorship. I think that, you know, when, when there is a a real threat, when people's lives are, are at risk, you need to act on that. Like ideally, yes, ideally you would challenge their ideas and yours would prevail, but that is not the world that we live in. We live in a world where bad ideas get a megaphone through, you know, unlimited amounts of money and where good, well-meaning um, uh, uh, tolerance for free speech is, 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 tur- is, is turned into platforms for, you know, hate groups and, and violent activity like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, we, I, yeah. So that's, that's sort of where I'm at. I, I'm not. Yeah. Social media censorship doesn't really, I, I don't view it as real, as censorship, like genuine censorship. Uh, oh, it just doesn't, a, doesn't register with me at this point. This is definitely a conversation that we will continue. Obviously, there's a lot of things that are going to take place. Uh, results still coming in from the election, but obviously looking ahead to 24 and what's going to happen with the movement as we try to improve it. 
there is obviously a lot of work to be done. Walker, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And where can people find you? How can they follow your work, support your work? The floor is yours. Uh, well, if you like independent news, uh, you should download the opt-out app. It's on iOS and Android. Um, it's, it's, uh, we prioritize independent investigative work, but it's, uh, you can stream podcasts, you can watch shows right on the app. Um, that's on iOS and, and Google play, which I think is the new Android thing. And used to be the Android store. Now it's the Google play. Um, uh, my, my, my writing now is uh, my latest story is with the Center for Media and Democracy, which is exposed by CMD. Uh, you can check that out. Um, and there's more coming. Uh, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll keep you in the loop. Always. Um, and, and just to, just to clarify, like, because I know I, I left off an, a, an unfortunate soundbite that I'm not concerned about censorship online. I don't think it's a good thing if like journalists in Yemen are having their content taken down. Obviously that is still concerning, but like, the far right stuff, like the, the, the yeah. dangerous like stuff. I don't consider that censorship. Yeah. I think no, I understand. You're talking, about hate speech. You're talking about hate speech. And that's definitely something that can, is a debatable thing for me. You know, it's one of those things that I don't see as like, I, I could see both sides of that very clearly because mm. that's what we're talking. We're talking about hate speech and whether or not that should be protected speech. And remember, there's always going to be shit stirs that are going to try to draw the line and push that line as far as they can. And if I could, see both sides. And if they could push that line and make some money along the way, possibly even a lot of money, you better believe they're going to do everything. Yeah. So I don't like to me, that's not one of those hard and fast ones where I think that you're like a censorship person. Like, I, I know not. that you're not. And I know that you're not. And just because you talk fast and think faster, <coughs> Ben Shapiro, doesn't mean that you're right. No, so, it means uh, what, that. What, you, what are you talking about? Ben, ben Shapiro is one of the smartest big brain people in the world. <laughs> oh, if that's <laughs> oh if I, ever, I, can't if just, I, I can't tell who who do you like? Less Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson? Um, or you could throw like Stephen oh, Crowder in that mix well, too. Yeah, Steve, well, Stephen Crowder's a scumbag, but that's a whole other story. Um, I don't like either of them. Day. I think they're uh, both just to complete. Like Ben Shapiro to me is he is like a fraud. Like I don't understand why people think he's so smart. I don't thing, understand it. Yeah, I would definitely say Ben Shapiro. And by the way, if you don't know how to get your wife wet, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem, man. I'm saying he self-reports. You don't even have to go look that stuff up. That's self-reporting. Self-reports. He does. Yeah. He is his, like, just his existence is self-reporting. Like, you just, no. He's like, you know what? He's the, like, He's the real life version of like Alex P. Keaton on speed. <laughs> like that's what it is to me. He's like like Michael J. Fox to, on speed is Alex. You know, P. I've Keaton. got a lot of him. I've got a Wait, lot. Walker, of, you're too young. Do you yeah. know? Do you know Family Ties? You don't even know what I'm Check talking about. Okay. So well, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I know. I recognize Alex P. Keaton because of that horrible uh, Abercrombie and Fitch song. Like one of the. Oh, I don't know that. Do you know that it was Michael J. Fox? Right. And it was his. Yes. Well, Michael J. Fox was Alex P. Keaton. Yeah. Right. And the character, if you took Ben Shapiro and you he slowed down how he spoke and he was actually really bright, that would be Alex P. Keaton. So I say he's Alex P. Keaton on speed. But but Jordan Peterson is, is, you know, he's his own. He's his own thing. He's sort of an ethereal creature who. Who uh, speculates on on the nature of man and humanity as, as though he's an alien observing it 
for the first time and reporting back to headquarters. Talk about <laughs> sanctimony. Talk about sanctimonious. That man, like, really just, does he really believe his own crap? Uh, I don't know. He tries to convince people that he just eats red meat and nothing else. So I guess anything's possible. So, somebody that- said... He, Jordan Peterson is is what a, a, a dumb person thinks a smart person sounds like. <laughs> Walker Brackman, always a pleasure. Bye. And as always, it is enjoyable. I do think my assessment of Ben Shapiro is accurate. I do. I think he's like, that's what it is. But he's like a, like a little boy that just has, that, he's like, a, he's a very small man. That made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Oh. I came on this podcast specifically Just. to talk about very important topics at the no, time. No, you can't you do can, it. No, I'm totally doing Ben no. Shapiro right now. And let me tell you something. The Republicans, they still want the House and the Senate. And they are now going to block all the terrible legislation that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to put forward. So we are definitely going to be in stagnation for the next two years. And in 2024, we're going to win back the White House, and then we can get some real also, policy. Let me, let me just say this. Shout out to Mrs. Shapiro for tolerating whatever she has to deal with. And if you're looking for something that might be more satisfying, call. I can maybe set you up with something. You never know. That I might made, know a few people. That made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah, you, cannot, sense you, cannot, you, know, you cannot impede upon the fact that I can definitely please my wife. I can absolutely Apparently not. It. No, I definitely can. I've been working <laughs> out. You sound like Rain Man. I'm very, very, <laughs> no, I'm very affectionate. That's I'm, what you sound like. Ben Shapiro merged with Rain Man. I'm very strong. I'm a very masculine man. Yeah. Very masculine. Yeah. I want to punch you in your vagina. I do not have a vagina. I totally have a penis. <laughs> I s- don't make me prove it, but I definitely Oh do. God, I would never want you to prove it. <laughs> They're, they've been taking bets lately as to whether or not I'm actually a woman, but I am not. Well, can, I am well actually you're a man. very big into defining what a woman is. So, you know, that's one of the big, here's the thing. And not seriously, not don't be in character. I'm being very serious. People, for the love of God, what are people's concern with genitalia? Why are people concerned with other people's genitalia? Let alone what they do with it. But like, what's the deal with that? Because to me, all of this comes down to their discomfort with the idea of trans people. That's what this is. It's discomfort with they they don't like it and it's weird. I think the louder people scream regarding things that are not of the norm, if you will, just has to do with their own personal insecurities because deep down, I think a lot of them have sexual repression. Uh, Some of them may be in the closet. Some of them may be outright gay and can't admit All of that is true. It's just unbelievable to me, the amount of time and energy that we spend Dealing with people's private parts, yes. whether it's whether it's Roe v. Wade, whether it's transgenders in bathrooms, whether it's with hormone blockers, because let's be real, people, you're not concerned with kids health. You have no concern for kids health. If you were all concerned for kids health, we'd have health care. Kids would be able to get free health care. It would all be good. We don't have that. But all of a sudden you're concerned if they if their parents and their doctor think they should be on puberty blockers, like somehow that's your business to be in their doctor's office with them because you're doing it for the kids. That isn't the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. But then, but then you argue that it's a parent's right to control what their kids learn at school. So you can't say gay because it's a parent's right to control that. Well, what about the parents? Is it not their right to determine what their kids health care regimen should be? Why don't those parents have rights? You see, it isn't about parents' rights. It's about you don't like transgender people because it's weird to you and you don't like it and it's icky. And that is what this is about. And so you have then deemed them a population worthy of kicking down on. That's all.
It's all about punching down. It's not about parents' rights. Or you would not care, like, if it was about parent. Well, that's what they say. They say with the education thing, with the school boards, with the banning of the books, with the don't say gay, it's parents' rights. It's parents' rights to determine what their kids can hear and what they can't hear. Well, those same people are against parents and doctors deciding that their children should be able to be on hormone blockers. Same people. So I just, it's, it's so strange to me that you care about parents' rights with what their kids hear, but parents don't have rights to determine their kids' health care. Again, everything and anything. So infuriating. Not to talk about economic populism. That's all it is. There's a reason why these particular issues get to the forefront. There's a reason why there is a lady who is now on the school board in Broward County oh. who is completely It's, it's unhinged. Mind. But you know what? That is true. But those people that are trying to distract us from the economic populist message, that's at the They're top. They're not suffering economically. No, that's but the they're preying on people that are very concerned with genitals. And that's what I'm talking about. The fact that there is that big of a group of people that are so insecure and so freaked out by what other people have in their pants, that they're willing to jump on board behind that sort of rallying cry on this tribal shit that we know is a distraction. But the fact that there's so many people that are able to be distracted based on who should use what bathroom and what, are you kidding me? Like, it's, it's so bizarre to me that we're, what, be, mind your own pants. Seriously, mind your own pants, mind your own bedroom. It's like, God damn it, people. I, it's just so crazy to me. I'm sorry. Was that a live and let live rant? Because <laughs> it's just bizarre to me. Just where did the trans die. people, where do you think the trans folk went to the bathroom before you were talking about them? Did you think they didn't live amongst us? Like there were no trans people except for now they're being groomed to be trans. No, newsflash. People are starting to feel like it's okay to be who they are. It's sort of like, I remember a while ago, somebody was saying something about, God, there's so much, this was maybe in the eighties. God, we're seeing so much more cancer. I'm like, well, that is true, but no, you're seeing so much more cancer because it's being diagnosed. So you, you can't say, oh, there's so many more trans people. No, that's not a thing. It's always the same amount of people. You just now have to be knowing who they are. Oh my God, because they're allowed to maybe live in the open. And go to no, whatever, they're not. and go to whatever freaking restroom they want to use. Which, by the way, trans people—I know this is going to sound crazy—they're just regular people. They live amongst us for the most part, pretty unassumingly, and just go about their lives. And the restroom that they're going to use, the one that goes with their identity that they feel is the one they ought to be using because they get to decide. And guess what? For the most part. It's in a line with what's socially comfortable. I don't want to walk in a lady's room and have a fully bearded man standing there just because he happens to have a vagina. That is not what I want. So I don't want people telling people, again, the genitals. Let people just live. They'll use the correct bathrooms. I assure you, they will use the correct bathrooms. And they're not pederasses hanging out in the public bathrooms waiting to molest people. How no, can you prove that? Because that would be your priests that are doing that, okay? Oh. Kids are molested by family and friends and loved ones and teachers infinitely more than they're ever molested by strangers. And I would bet you to say that in the history of this country, you could not find one example of a transgender person molesting somebody in a fucking public bathroom. And I, I, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. That's not a thing. <laughs> support a living wage support universal health care 
support a clean energy grid, support ending the endless wars, and that includes Ukraine and Taiwan. <laughs> oh, Taiwan! We're 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 pre we're pre did not we're not supporting that war. We're against that war. We're prematurely against that war. Let's say that. You're getting violent. <laughs> I am getting violent. Behave yourself. I feel defensive of vulnerable populations and trans people are vulnerable. As Colonel West says, it's our precious trans folk. Yeah. And I do not appreciate people being hateful. Mm, so you make a pretty good leader on Capitol Hill. I, I don't know. Well, I'm just saying it's voice. like, why would you want to kick the most vulnerable people? It's like when they come in like bulldoze homeless encampments. Yeah, that's that's what we need. Let me tell you, if you guys have never seen Bernie's early congressional rant uh, about homos in the military, when he was con- when he basically confronted <laughs> in the military. This, yeah, that was great. This, this total backwards conservative from Booney, USA. What you want? Your homos in the military? Oh, Bernie, Ex- let him have it. Well, let me excuse me. Did I hear you correctly? Did you say homos in the military? Did I hear that correctly? He wasn't that. He was. He really. He raised his voice. Yeah, he was mad. He was mad. Like uh, he was not being so civil. He got pissed. That's why Bernie was such an anomaly, because they're almost like, we don't like your kind of folk here in Congress. We're a very elite private organization. We don't want people like you here preaching your hippy-dippy, progressive liberal, tree-hugging crap. You and that, you just because you happen to have been the most successful mayor in the country running Burlington, Vermont— that doesn't mean anything in these parts. And Bernie was on the forefront of gay marriage always. He was. Always. The freaking audacity. You know, you talk about opening up old wounds. You want to talk about something with the freaking Hillary, with the Clinton campaign that was so disgusting? They tried to paint Bernie as just like this anti-gay guy, <laughs> this pro-white guy. Hillary Clinton was on record in 2010 saying, I do not believe in equal they marriage. They did not believe in it. Yet Bernie hosted the very first, the very first in the United States gay pride parade in 1983 as mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Not just that. I mean, that's like pomp and circumstance. That's photo op. I get it. But what we're talking about, Bernie and Burlington and Vermont was one of the first, it was the first state to have civil unions. Mm. And Bernie had been talking about that forever. He's been a proponent of same-sex marriage forever. And so to ever paint him as, and that's like legit, he's voted for it. He's supported it. He's promoted it. He's spoken about it. So I, that's just ridiculous. We've got some really interesting guests coming up. I support gay marriage because I think everybody should equally have the right to attach themselves to a person for eternity if they so choose. Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I think everybody should have the right to do so. Everybody has the right to be equally miserable. Double K, I don't know why you love us so much. I don't either. We love you. I certainly appreciate I'm, you. And Peter has informed me of your of your age and demographic, and I am very, very thankful that you're here. I am very, very thankful that you are here because my demographic tends to be like, what's my male-female percentage? And most of the people that are, are really otherwise young for the most part. And I do appreciate having women of women of a wisdom age in yes. my, in my midst. I very much appreciate that. So we are going to have some more interesting guests coming up. Uh, I don't agree with Walker on everything that he said. Absolutely and not. Definitely not. Uh, and then and we'll you, leave it at that. And Walker and does come from a very different background. And so his perspective is his perspective. That's correct. But he, he really is coming from a, such a good place and what he's trying to do and and what he's about and helping people and standing up for people. So I don't have, again, 
I don't have to agree with him on everything, but he's in it for the right reasons and he's fighting the good fight. So love that. We will see if Monday will come to fruition. We will potentially have. Oh, welcome on, back from timeout, yeah. Scat. It was a quiet few minutes without we you. Will, we will have. Uh, we're very likely going to have Kim Iverson on on uh, Monday. And we'll if you guys are going to be through. rancid and nasty, I'm going to block you in the chat because you know what? I don't care. You want to talk crap about me? Talk crap about me. But I don't need you doing that to guests. We're trying to build a channel. It has nothing to do with free speech. You can go on their Twitter and their website and say whatever you want about them. But I really don't need that crap when I'm trying to interview somebody. You know Arlene, what I mean? So that's that's my position. You. So if you're going to start. Love the show tonight. Thank you, you Arlene. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Um, I, we try to do that. I, you know, um, we're, we're, you know, we try to be informative. The goal of my life is to surround myself with smarter people. Anytime so I'm going to do everything I can to contribute to educating people because it just makes my life better. We're all better when we're all better. And uh, it seems like anytime we're getting trolled, we always get a donation. So yeah, keep trolling us, guys. We seem to have pretty good supporters here. That Okay, the Georgia Peach was mean, though. That's someone else. I don't know who that is. That's not Scat. I feel bad. I, I feel bad for TM. I really like her. And she obviously is a big supporter of the show. But she, of course, th- thinks that Walker is wrapped up way too tight. And I know, you know, and they're, and but they're, she and she tends to be more, you know, conservative very and, and that's fine. Very Look, much. I like all of you guys. I like all the people. I don't like Georgia Peach. You were very mean to me tonight. You know, older women have our own set of insecurities. You don't need to be like harping on my wrinkles and stuff like it's just unnecessary. I thank you. Double K. Yeah, no, I, I was uh, I wasn't going to argue with Walker, but there's definitely a difference of opinion. Thank you, bungled and botched. You know, I am very much a free speed absolute. I don't know why you're bungled and botched. I hope it's kind of like not serious. Am I allowed to share a thought? Please. I'm sorry. I'm reading this. So I do think that there is something to be said for having the difference of opinion. And even so much on those, the idea of civil liberties that some people just do not agree with, which is fine. But that doesn't mean that I have to go along with it. And that's the live and let live aspect of, of life that I think people really need to understand. If we're ever going to get anywhere, that's the only way it's going to happen. Point being, we're having Kim Iverson coming. Kim Iverson is most likely, we'll see. We'll see if she uh, confirms Okay. Uh, for Monday. Uh, Wednesday, we are going to have uh, our friends. Uh, um, uh, Punch up pod? Yes. I don't know. Have we met them? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm trying to remember. Uh, okay. You did, that, you did that weed and wine uh, happy hour. Oh, yeah. She was cool. Oh, yeah. No, they're very uh, they're very smoky fluid to yes. interview. And then the, uh, and then the, and the hulky guy, uh, I forgot his. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to have some fun with them next next Wednesday. Okay. That's cool. Well, I, you know what? Look, guys, I like him. I've always been very clear about that. I like him. Dirtbag leftist, her. our good friend and supporter of the show, has made it very clear he does not like Kim Iverson, and I have no doubt that he will be here to let her know that. And that's fine with intelligible, fine. reasonable, critical comments, and not being nasty and rude and that. That's fine. You can disagree and you could debate her and whatever. But I have met her. I have spoken to her. Like she, Thank you, Sam. she is. She does her research. She's extremely smart and she does not purposefully put out misinformation. You might not agree with some stuff that she said, but she is absolutely not putting out misinformation in any attempt to do anything. That's yeah, just not her. Re- that's and, not and, her and, a, and again, as I always said, a primary example is I would never advocate for ivermectin as the really as, as what you would be using uh, to deal with COVID. Everyone is entitled to do what they want. But the idea 
that there was this, that I already put that up. Oh, I'm sorry. If we obviously don't have that good of chemistry. <laughs> clearly not. Uh, there must, there really is something to be said for, man, you really just, you're like all over the place. I'm now so I sorry. I've been sitting here since five o'clock. So there was, um, if there is a disagreement on, let's say, ivermectin, that's yeah. fine. But to say that people are taking horse tranquilizer when you know that's not true, or horse paste, whatever they were calling it, you know that's not true. That's not what people were doing. And you did it anyway for political points. That's not how we get where we're going to get. Because the truth is, a lot of people agree on these major issues that we're trying to get in this country. That's the point. If we're ever going to get there, then telling people that who may use ivermectin, you don't have to agree with it. I didn't use it. But if somebody chooses to, don't say what they're using is horse paste because that only widens the divide. It's not helping. It's just, again, it's, it's just credit very to judgy. J- credit to Jamie, Joe Rogan's producer, who let Matt Walsh have it on his last podcast. Matt Walsh is on there spewing his BS about this idea that millions of kids in this country are being are on are on puberty blockers. When in reality it's a it's it's four or five thousand. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But the fact that he felt the need to to exaggerate at that level shows that he's a lying, grifting piece of shit. That's it. And so we will have on Kim Iverson. We will have on the punch up pod. We are also going to have on our good friend, the actual justice warrior. Oh, I love Sean actual. I love actual justice warrior. See, now there is somebody who I do probably won't agree with on things, but he's extremely reasonable. Like, I, it's just fascinating to me that I get along with people and and I'm sitting here right now and out of the corner of my eye, and you guys obviously can't see this, but we hung up this picture. That's my picture of Christopher Hitchens that I have that I love because he is the reason to my reason. Um, and it's a picture of him and he's like holding up his scotch glass like this. And I'm looking at him. We're talking about Kim Iverson. And I feel like, what would what would he say? And it's like, we're all entitled to have our opinions. We're just not entitled to our own facts. So it's like we, it's not we, like Kim, it's not like Kim is going to be on this show and we're just going to go right along with everything she says and say, oh, yeah, completely. No, totally agree. but let her explain. She does her research. She doesn't make stuff up and pull it out of her ass. She works hard to do what her, her work and get into stuff. And she covers things very well when she does. She's very thorough. So it's like you've got to give people like that the benefit of the doubt. She's not purposefully spreading misinformation. Same with Walker. Trust Everyone people that different. are trying to work and get what like these are people that are on the same that are on our team. Yeah. They're trying to be part of the solution. You might not agree with how they're going about it, but I promise you, Kim is part of the solution, not the problem. I when it comes to and we will ask her when Kim is on, we will ask her point blank. Do you support universal health care? Do you support a living wage? Do you support a clean energy grid? Do you support ending endless wars? Do you support criminal justice? Do reform? not dare talk like that when she's here. I swear I'm not going to let you do that. It's not cool, but I agree. She really does have a good rack. But what the fuck, Jen? She does. She looks great. You can make fun of Kim all you want for anything like politically, but she looks great. She does. She looks great. She takes good care of herself. Anyway, thank you guys for <laughs> supporting our show. Thank for those who came and crossed over from Jordan's Status Coop podcast from earlier. <laughs> Looks like a handful of you guys came over this evening. Thank you, guys. Hopefully you also subscribed, liked, and shared the video. If you are so inclined, again, become a Patreon of our show. We'd really appreciate it. Or go to Cash App, any support. Uh, exactly. That, yeah. Exactly, Eric. She's on our team. Yeah. 
Well, she's good people. And Scott, you're you're a buffoon, but that's okay. Yeah, just don't 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 be like. I don't know who the other one was. The other person was mean. Scat's just annoying. Bungled and botched is absolutely right. Yeah. All we have to do is keep talking because the more we get to know each other, the more we know each other, the yeah. more we like each other, and the more we'll find common ground. That's the bottom line. Well, that's what it's all about. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have Beth on. Like this whole stigma about, you know, opioid cra- Like it's very important that we see other people as real human people. And I will leave on this note regarding Tucker Carlson. You know, I think one of the best people, bar none, in all of politics, even though he's in labor, is Chris Smalls. Chris Smalls went on Tucker Carlson's show. Yeah. And Tucker Carlson wanted to get him to bash AOC and bash the left because they weren't there for him the way that they probably should have been, or frankly, no, they needed to be. But they weren't. And so instead, what does Chris do? He redirects the conversation and starts talking about the issues within labor and was very thorough about it to the point where at the end of the conversation— You had Tucker Carlson saying, I'm not a supporter of unions, but man, I definitely agree there needs to be more balance and labor needs more power in this country. As far as I'm concerned, if you can accomplish that, you have accomplished everything because that's the soundbite that the powers that be don't want people to hear. They don't want that. They'll probably not invite him back on, though. Probably not. But you know what? He had his moment. He made it count. And we are going to make ours count. We try. So. Uh, We'll see how these elections unfold. Obviously, by Monday, we'll know a hell of a lot more where we're at. And we'll see if you we've got some special guests. Oh, you got to do our small business neighbor. Yes. One last thing before we go, of course, is we have to promote our local small business who is a sponsor. We kind of went a little out of order today because I really wanted to take advantage of like viewership. If you're thinking about home, life, or auto insurance, we highly recommend you give a call to our local small business in Delray Beach, Florida, Apex Insurance Agency. You might get a quote that will surprise you because let's be honest, nowadays getting any type of insurance coverage is like insane. Voiceover. You're like, you sound like voiceover commercial is fine. Well, in the state of Florida, it's obviously not so good. So definitely give Apex Insurance Agency a call. We will definitely be grateful if you let them know that. Tell them Jen you. and Pete sent you. Yes. But yeah, seriously, guys, if you don't have a particular insurance agent, it's always nice but to use someone local if you're down here, Tri-County. If you do have a small business that you would like to have promoted on our show, it is only $50 a month as a patron, and we would very much appreciate that support, and we will plug you every time and recommend that people Every time, absolutely. And also, you can even come and talk to us on our show. You can come on our show and promote your own business. That would be gravy. And um, I would also point out, what is it that I'm really looking for as far as a small business sponsor? You know. Uh, What's my number one get? Small business sponsor. I don't know. Candy shop? No, taco truck. Taco truck. Right. Taco How truck. many times have I said, I, if you have a taco truck, please, please be a small business sponsor. We we'll will promote you. We'll come to you. Yeah. Thank you all. We'll see you Monday. Bye all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.